This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham on episode number 38. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Excited for today's show. Some really cool guests. A lot to cover. Uh, I'll be curious to see how we get through all this in a in one episode. But it's, it's a lot of timely stuff. It's a lot of uh, stuff that's relevant to digital transformation, as always, which the show is about anything related to digital transformation, the people, process, and technology sides of digital transformation. And so today we've got three major segments or three primary threads we're going to cover today. Uh, First, we're going to cover something that's very timely, which was the recent uh, Facebook whistleblower situation and the follow-on Facebook and social media outage that happened after that. And this just happened a couple weeks ago. And uh, we're going to talk about, uh, just unpack that and talk about what it means to transformations in general and data and all kinds of different stuff there. Uh, that'll be the opening segment. And then we have a couple guests on the show today. We have uh, Khalid Morris, who is a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage, uh, and who also moonlights as a youth basketball coach. So we are actually going to have him on the show to talk about sports and how the the lessons in sports, team sports in particular, um, team chemistry, winning, keeping keeping score, building a good team, how the lessons from sports can actually translate to a transformation initiative. So it's a totally different take on what we've covered in other uh, guests or other interviews on this this show, but should be a very interesting one. And then finally, the third guest we'll have on the show today, or the third segment uh, that we'll have on the show, is uh, Adam Cheatham, who is another Director of Strategy and Transformation at uh, Third Stage. And we're going to talk about the labor shortages in the ERP and digital transformation space and how that affects transformations and what it means to organizations going through these sorts of transformations. So that's uh, the, the show we have uh, planned for you today. So let's start with, before we bring our guests on the show, let's talk about this whole Facebook thing. It's an intriguing, uh, pretty big deal. What what uh, what are some of the things that uh, you want to talk about there, Kyler? Yeah, absolutely. So for our audiences, we know we have a lot of global communities here on Um, ground control, I wanted to kind of just do an overview quickly of of kind of what we're experiencing in the United States. Um, So recently before the the U.S. Congress, um, we had uh, someone that used to work at Facebook that had a bunch of documentation that talked about really the ethics of Facebook and how technically their algorithm works in specifics to not only politics and influences on our election, but also on minors on the actual platform. So just to kind of give you an idea of who this person was, she was the head of um, their ethics and um, civil communities. And she felt as though she needed to say something because she felt Facebook was monetizing its users to the point 
software was putting its own profitability before safety. And that's what she felt as though our government here in the states needed to step in for regulation. Just to give kind of a comparison, um, she compared it to the tobacco industry when there's in you know the 70s and 80s when there started to be more regulation around the tobacco industry and advertising specifically in targeting our youth. So just a few things I want to kind of talk about when it comes to why this situation for us here in the States is, is pretty unique. One, um, it's completely bipartisan. So obviously, as many of you know from our audience in the United States, we're experiencing some very divisive um, communications when it comes to our elections and how that integrates with technology from voting machines to social platforms to foreign powers, kind of what that looks like. Um, so that that's one thing that we all agree from our leadership level that there needs to be some sort of regulation or understanding of these big titans that have so much influence over our culture. The second thing I kind of wanted to dig, dig into, and Eric, you, you definitely are, are the technology expert here, is, is what is the Facebook algorithm and how does it work? So some things I wanted to share from the report is that Facebook utilizes an algorithm um, that shows you the content that you want to engage with as a user or you have engaged with in the past. And that's how they make money, right? Based off of paid media or users spending more time on their site because they're funneling them content that they want to look into. So if I really love cat videos, I'm getting more ads for cat food or cat toys or groups, you know, moms that love cats, things like that um, in my Facebook newsfeed. Um, however, the reason that this specific stakeholder in the community stood up was because of the divisive or dangerous content when it comes to actually putting out content that is controversial. So a couple of examples of those, and we'll kind of jump into the dialogue. So we have Facebook putting out what they call um, high engagement rate posts. That's how they, you know, are you going to click on it? Are you likely to comment on it? And they found through their research that divisive posts that they put in your newsfeed, you're more likely to engage with it because it may spark an emotional reaction or something like that. And when it comes to our young people here in the United States, that's really the concern. So just to share a few statistics globally. So 15% of teen girls actually in our UK, so for our UK audience, reported from Facebook's insight research feeling elevated suicidal thoughts after seeing what was in their content. So obviously a huge red flag there. 17% of global teen girls um, said that after going on Instagram, which Facebook owns, right, and controls with the same algorithm, they felt as though their eating disorders got worse. And then a huge 32% of teenagers after going on Instagram felt bad about their bodies. So these are the types of, of divisive pieces of content or aka dangerous pieces of content that you may, as your teenager, search for healthy foods. And then all of a sudden, you're pumped full with these eating disorder types of content, making, you know, 
um, poor choices when it comes to crash dieting, really, you know, uh, bad nutritional choices. So it's gone kind of from just putting in healthy recipes, right, to actually putting them in a situation where this content they're more likely to engage with. Um, Mark Zuckerberg calls it um, meaningful social interactions. So that means that you're clicking or commenting on this. So Eric, I, th I thought that it might be interesting to get your perspective from a technical level on utilizing that algorithm or that you know artificial intelligence to kind of influence what people, specifically maybe influential people when it comes to our young people, are experiencing and, and kind of what your reaction is to that from a technical standpoint. Well, I think, you know, on the surface, it's a, it's a good reminder on how technology when unchecked or when you're focused too much on technology, if you neglect the human side of things, this is what happens. I mean, you have these unintended consequences and bad things can happen unintentionally, uh, presumably here. Um, so that that's the first thing that sort of bubbles up is, is hearing you talk about this. Uh, and by the way, if if uh, you and others listening to the show haven't seen the series of articles in the Wall Street Journal um, that sort of they're the ones that uncovered this whole thing or she the whistleblower initially went to the Wall Street Journal with this documentation. And the articles are really good. Like they're really I mean, I feel like they should win awards for the series of articles they wrote and they covered different angles every day. Yeah, I think it was a Monday through Friday. They, they uncovered it all. Um, you know, one story each day. Um, and then and now she's, you know, a bit on the media and whatnot. So people know her. And plus, obviously, the Facebook outage further uh, shine the spotlight on her. Um, but getting back to your question, the um, the other part of this, too, is, you know, there's just so many. I'll try not to get political on this, uh, even though I have very strong opinions on uh, all the stuff you just talked about. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, it, it also raises the question of data privacy, too, um, you know, because you know, you've got this data, it's be, the algorithm is fueled by the data that it's collecting from you and others. So the fact that something, you know, something in the algorithm is telling Facebook that a young girl is going to be highly likely or has an X percentage chance of responding to this piece of content that could be harmful. Um, there's a, there's just a lot of, there's a lot there, you know, as far as the privacy of the data, is that right or wrong? Um, the whole ethics of should they be doing things that are harmful in the name of driving up engagement and getting more eyeballs and more advertising revenue. That's a, that's a, that's a slippery slope for sure. Or a difficult, uh, balancing act. So those are the two immediate thoughts is the human versus technology, uh, trade-off, I guess you'd say, which I think applies to any organization that's deploying technology, especially as you start to get into machine learning and, uh, robotic process automation and things that have really big impacts on people. And it could have really big negative impacts on people, even if the net impact on the organization is ben more beneficial overall, which is probably true for Facebook. They clearly are driving up their profits. They're a very profitable company, very highly valued uh, on the stock market and whatnot, but there's there's a downside consequence. So I think that's something just to be aware of in any sort of technological journey, uh, especially as you get into some of these more advanced uh, AI machine learning types of types of things. So those are just a few things that come to mind uh, on that. Yeah, definitely. I know later in the episode, we'll kind of get to um, the ERP labor shortage and talking about manufacturing and how AI actually can help on that level. Um, but our guest, Adam, talks about the need for human interaction. No one has 100% automated experience. 
And I think that's the danger of this. He gives a great example that I like to share. Um, if you actually used AI to show you when to buy Christmas trees, and I think this is actually from our VP Stuart in um, the UK, it would it would buy all of your inventory in January to buy Christmas trees. Obviously, the Christian holiday Christmas is in December, but that's not what the data is showing. It's showing pricing. It's showing product availability, those types of things. But without a human influence in that conversation, we have a bunch of Christmas trees in February, right? Where obviously we're not going to need them for 10, 11 months at that point. Um, so I, I think that the interesting thing about this to me too is you have this huge mega tech titan. And Eric, I'm, I'm so curious to hear your feedback on this because you know so much about kind of the bias and the dark side if you will, of the technology industry, specifically on the software side. But so you have a, a whistleblower that says all of these, you know, terrible things about what Facebook is doing. And then the biggest tech conglomerate on the entire, you know, surface of the world goes dark the very next day after their interview. So not to get too conspiracy theorist on you, but but I want to. Okay, so I <laughs> So what do you think about that? Is is that just the the biggest coincidence on the face of the earth or or what kind of prickles for you there? Well, it, yeah, that's funny cuz uh I I love conspiracy theories, I'll be honest. Me too. Uh, Me guilty too. as charged. Uh, I love to read about them even if I don't believe them. I, I love it's just fascinating. But yeah. You know, there's so much there's so much in that question. It, it's hard to answer almost. I mean, there's so many different directions to go. Um you know, what I'd say is that, uh, first of all, I mean, you mentioned something at the beginning of the question about the bias uh, of the industry. And, you know, I think Facebook is an extreme example of a technology company throwing its weight around, in my opinion, too much. It's, it's got too much power. It's, it's too much concentration of power. And I think that's very true even in the uh, enterprise technology space on, on a smaller scale. Obviously, Facebook and Instagram and those social media platforms touch you know, billions of people across the world every day. And it's the only, you know, it's really somewhat of a monopoly where it's, it's, there's not a lot of alternatives. Uh, there are, you know, there's TikTok and others, I suppose, but there, there's, there's only a handful of alternatives, at least in the enterprise technology space, you have, you know, a lot of smaller options and mid-tier options. But when you get to the bigger uh, uh, ecosystems in the enterprise technology space, you have a lot of the same problem. It may not be, uh, you know, the same exact sort of uh, issues with with teen girls having eating disorders, but you end up having these enterprise technology firms that are promoting a false narrative that's just not true, but they're doing it because they can and because they can pump tons of marketing dollars into this message that is absolutely not true. And I'll give you an example, the whole uh, sort of forced migration to the cloud. That is absolutely... Uh, not true that cloud is better or that cloud is cheaper or that, you know, if you, if you don't move to the cloud, you're dead. It's just not true, but that is the marketing narrative. They have more marketing spend than the smaller guys or the on-premise guys. So they're going to, you know, that's the message that's going to win. And a lot of times that's sort of like what Facebook is doing They're you know, but they're doing it for different reasons. Obviously they're just doing it because they want to get engagement. They want to get um, people to, to respond. Um, I also know just from the way we, you know, the kind of thought leadership we do, we, we tend to put out as, at third stage, we tend to put out controversial, non-conventional sorts of messages. And that does get a lot of engagement because it's, it is controversial. You get people that like it and you get some people that don't like it because it's not, 
it doesn't fit their narrative. It's not what the software vendors want to hear. They don't want us saying that stuff and not to get into censorship, but I would think if big software vendors could, they'd probably find a way to censor third stage. Um, pure, pure speculation, what if, hypo- hypothetical, but I do think that that's the case. So there's a lot there. So I think, you know, you have to think through all those different different pieces uh, when, when you're, you know, thinking about how, you know, what translates from this case into, you know, the some of the more uh, day-to-day enterprise technology type stuff that people listening to the show might might be focused on. Yeah, definitely. I um, we get we actually get a lot of hate mail through our contacts <laughs> sometimes, and sometimes you know they're they're laughable because they're like you are a liar dot com, you know, all of these different things because we we really do feel as though our clients and our community deserve the truth, and it's 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 similar in the way that sometimes these tech companies have this leverage over users over um, companies that they come in and say, hey, user, you know, you have to look at all of these things. Hey, software, you have to customize all of your business processes in order to fit our software. And so I I think the key takeaway kind of from this, and, and again, much less of an extreme example, but is, it, is again, letting the technology lead your strategy, whether it's, you know, in parenting and letting your kids be exposed to social media and the risks associated with that, or it's within the software industry and kind of being bullied or misled, if you will, by vendors in the industry that are saying, you know, you're going to increase efficiencies by 75%. And they would have no way of knowing that, but it sounds really good and it gets clients excited. Um, So I I think it's similar kind of in that, in that way of, just understanding that there still has to be a human side to any sort of technology strategy, whether it's in a professional sphere or a personal one. Yeah, I never thought about that. I never made that connection, but it's a really good connection, that connection of, you know, you would never, as a parent, you would never let Facebook determine best practice for how you're going to raise your kids. You know, you're not going to say, well, I'm just going to leave it to Facebook to based on their algorithm and their machine learning they're going to teach my kids what they need to know about life. I don't imagine many people, if any, would do that. But that's essentially what software vendors in the enterprise technology space will try to get you to do as an organization. They'll try to get you to just defer to what our software does. We'll give you the answer because we have best practices. We have more efficient ways of working. Sometimes that's true, but a lot of times that's not true. So it's a, it's a really good analogy or, or comparison between mm-hmm. the two. Yeah, and, and it, it's almost sad in a way for us that are, are passionate about our clients and in the industry, you know, that that can be misled because especially for our small business clients, I was recently working on a case study where um, a, a client was given actually a, a business case. Usually that's built internally by our clients and, and we sometimes help that, but the, the vendor built it for them and it was just totally honestly made up. And when you have a small business that doesn't have the capacity or the budget to kind of work through that, it can be really difficult. Um, and I know you've experienced that too, Eric, on, on many different levels. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very, very true. And then when we when we look at kind of the the user argument when it comes to Facebook is that they target younger users because it creates that relationship and that consumer commitment for a long time, but also what um, this specific whistleblower was saying is 
it, it causes the parents to then become users too, because they want to be kind of that gatekeeper uh, of what that looks like. And it, it kind of took me to our organizational change strategies and understanding that when there is a new technology in place, we guide our clients through being transparent about the technology, understanding that your strategy or family dynamics and manifesto are what should be leading your experience. So I wondered if you had any any feedback on that side as, you know, I know you have teenagers at home and kind of helping them through explaining that. Is there any correlation that you feel like there is to organizational change and having that conversation? Yeah, interesting. Um, in some ways it, it, it uh, brings up interesting talking points or it, it exposes you as a, as a parent or as a organization in the case of enterprise technologies, it, it exposes you to where the uh, concerns are, you know, as far as you know, if you do an organizational assessment, which we do for most of our clients, um, you know, you're exposing where the, where the cultural and organizational challenges or, or disadvantages are and the things that you want to shore up or, or, you know, at, least, at the very least be self-aware and know where the deficiencies are so you can improve them. So, yeah, I think it's a, there is a, there is a connection there for sure. Yeah. We should do an episode on OCM and parenting, do a little like mom's panel. Cause we've got some great moms on our side. We've got Kelly Kimberling obviously, and then um, Allison as well. And, and some other, you know, great kind of, that would be an interesting episode. Um, <laughs> but I think that's yeah. kind of a, yeah, a good segue into what Khalid is talking to us about today, which is kind of the coaching side of digital transformation. Um, and, and it's an interesting correlation because he's a youth sports coach um, as well. And, and, you know, just talking about uh, teaching, teaching kids what it means to actually have those team dynamics and those effective interpersonal relationships um, as well. So um, if anyone has any other thoughts on the Facebook subject or you want to engage in the conspiracy theory, you are welcome to, <laughs> to reach out or comment um, on, on these posts and, and we'll take a look at them and, and see if we can't, you know, do some investigation on, on our side. Or if you have questions for Eric about the correlation between these two really relevant subjects, um, feel free to reach out there. Uh, but with that, I, I think it's probably a good time to welcome Khalid to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, one last thing on this thread before we shift gears is uh, I never, I've never answered your conspiracy theory question and the coincidence or lack thereof between the whistleblower and the outage. Uh, so I, I think I'll leave that to the audience to maybe comment on, you know, is that a coincidence? You know, it happened literally like 24 or 48 hours after she was on, she had testified in front of the U.S. government, the U.S. Senate. Uh, some committee that was doing hearings on this whole Facebook whistleblower thing. And so she had just testified. I think the next day is when the outage happened. So yeah, um, we had a, a big media interview. So here in the States, we have something that's called 60 minutes, which is kind of like an investigative journalism series. And literally the night before she went on and the next day it was completely dark. So, um, my husband, who I'll, I'll out on here, I don't care, because I was like, can you, I was more focused on the revenue loss, because Mark Zuckerberg, his net worth went down $7 billion in five hours, like that's a lot, <laughs> that's a ton of money, and of course, my my um, my partner, who is in the digital transformation 
um, sphere, he was like, oh, they totally took that down. And, you know, they're looking through all their data and they create, and I never even entered that, that thought. So maybe you might be on his side that he, you know, he, he won't even let us have a baby monitor connected to the internet because he thinks someone is going to watch our kids sleep. I'm like, well, I mean, it's really not that exciting, but. <laughs> someone wants so, to watch the kids sleep, I guess they could. Right. <laughs> uh, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's funny. So I guess the question for the audience, let me reframe it. Who is they? So in this conspiracy theory, who is they that might have brought down Facebook? Is it, you know, <laughs> so. No, it's, yeah, that's fascinating. Well, those we'll, answers. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we've got to get some comments below. I'd love to hear hear what people have to say. So, well, good. Well, thanks for bringing that up. That's fascinating stuff, and I'm sure I, I don't. I suspect we haven't heard the end of it. So, it's a good uh, sort of touch point with how this is unfolding with big tech, social media, and also how that you know transitions or translates into uh, digital transformation, enterprise technologies. So, uh, back to your point earlier, we're going to shift gears and bring on Khalid Morris onto the show. We're going to talk about another analogy or another connection or connecting of the dots between sports, team building, team performance, winning, and digital transformation or any sort of business transformation. We're going to do that after we take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 38. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, as well as all the usual podcast platforms like Spotify, Amazon, Google, iHeartRadio, Pandora, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us there. Be sure to subscribe, uh, check out our weekly podcast, um, and any suggestions or reviews you have, we'd love to hear your feedback as well. So uh, we're going to have uh, our next guest on, which I'm excited for. It is uh, Khalid Morris, who is a Director of Strategy and Transformation here in our U.S. office at Third Stage Consulting. Uh, he's also a youth basketball coach, and uh, actually uh, the way Khalid and I had, had uh, sort of got back in touch after having worked together about a decade ago uh, was at a youth basketball tournament. Both of our kids are similar ages, and we were at the same tournament in Salt Lake City, of all places, and we just happened to run at each other and sort of reestablished uh, contact, and uh, uh, I enjoyed working with him in the past and uh, asked him to join our team, and he he accepted, so... Uh, he's a relatively new director on our team, uh, but what I thought would be great for his first uh, appearance on Transformation Ground Control is to talk about something he's passionate about, or two things he's passionate about. One is digital transformation, the other is sports, and what's the connection. And this is something I've always been fascinated by, uh, and finally I have someone credible other than myself who never played team sports and is you know, one of the less athletic people I'd say in the world. So I'm probably not the most credible person just to be talking about sports, but Khalid, on the other hand, he's very athletic. He played collegiate uh, basketball 
and uh, you can't see it in the video here when I introduce him, but he's uh, he's probably like two and a half feet taller than me. And that's not saying much because I'm I'm only five foot nine, but he's I don't know how tall he is, but he's pretty tall. So uh, very athletic guy and, and smart as well. So all that being said, uh, Khalid, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'll start with mine. And that's the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, we're planning on winning another championship here in 2021 I'm from Los Angeles, California, originally. So I am a huge Lakers and Dodgers buff. I live in Denver now. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm good with the Nuggets, right? Like we're, we're friends. Like I go to the games, except, but uh, my heart is always going to be with the, the Lakers. <laughs> Los Angeles Lakers. Okay. LeBron and uh, LeBron and company. Huh? Yeah. You just like, yeah. you like teams that dominate, I guess. Is Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make right. it as easy as possible. <laughs> right. Right. Well, before we jump into some more sports analogies and references, um, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and, and how you got to third stage and, and then what you do at third stage. My background, honestly, is finance. Um, I, you know, as an undergraduate, I loved finance. That was, that was something that I, I, the only thing I really connected to as an undergraduate and I love math and I love numbers. And so computers, you know, computer science, uh, ERP software, none of that was on my radar, um, when I was an undergraduate student and I started in finance. I did a lot of work in finance and that was all prior to going to graduate school at the University of Denver. And I went to graduate school at the University of Denver, it was actually for real estate. Um, you know, I connected, and maybe this is part of my finance background, economic development. I had a huge passion for uh, making difference in my communities and economic development, really doing um, uh, developmental work in the area of needs. You know, I, I'm a huge food buff. I do food advocacy now and work with a lot of food groups uh, independently. So it's, it's, you know, economic development is still a core part of me. But when I left the University of Denver, I started doing consulting. I wanted to get a job in real estate development, and that was during the crash. Nothing was available on the development front, and the only opportunities I really had was to use, the only real path for me was to use my business degree. And uh, the consulting opportunities sort of came up when I met you, uh, and and I just kind of liked it. It was it was another slice. And it was in an area where I, I didn't know a ton, right? Like IT, I, I, I knew I knew a lot about finance and real estate and all these other pieces, but the technical world was something that I really didn't didn't learn a lot about. So the opportunity to grow there, that was back in 07. And I've sort of been doing consulting work uh, since then as a career kind of component. And so I've been able to build out a lot of technical skills uh, on the implementation side, a lot of different Big four groups, a lot of different um, implementation delivery groups, Accenture, Deloitte, also with um, uh, Tidemark on the software side, too. So I've had a lot of experience on the technology side. and It's kind of created uh, an interesting blend of skills, if you will, for, for, for me in comparison to a lot of colleagues that I've had over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good to. Good to have you on the third stage team. I, we, you mentioned it in passing, but we uh, we actually worked together at my previous venture uh, about ten years ago or twelve years ago, whenever that yeah, was. Don't don't date us too much. Don't date <laughs> right. us. We we both have a little bit more gray. In <laughs> it our, happened a long time ago. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we were not as gray back then. But, uh, <laughs> then you went off and sort of you went, got into more you know deeper implementation yeah. type yeah. consulting, yeah. and now you're back working with the team here at, at uh, third stage. Yeah. Um, as Happy to be back. Yeah, good good to have you. 
And uh, one thing that's always intrigued me about uh, your background is that you played um, you played basketball collegially at Tulane, right? Yeah, I played at Tulane and Van Canis. Um, You know, I was playing a little bit after that. Then I kind of had an issue, a little health issue that kind of really forced me to really think through what made the most sense. And that was me you know, exploring my business career. That's what I wanted to do. And that's when I jumped into the, the finance piece. But I've been playing uh, basketball since God, I was six, five. Um, uh, competitively, I've kind of been able to, to do it at a high level. Um, you know, I've kind of been able to to see some some higher end uh, compete against some pretty good guys. And now I'm kind of able to, you know, my, my kids kind of pulled me into kind of doing some youth coaching and that sort of thing. So it still keeps me a little connected to basketball. I play still, so I'll occasionally kind of go to lifetime or something and, and kind of still play. So I still consider myself an athlete, but the injuries mount as you get older so you know you know time is uh, sort of undefeated so you kind of just <laughs> be what it is but i'm but i'm very much connected to the sport still yeah that i know you you downplay this and this makes you uncomfortable but the the team you coach now that um i've seen your team play because our our yeah. kids uh, are the same age and they were in the same yeah. Yeah. Uh, tournament not too long ago and your your team absolutely destroyed Every team that you played, it was. I'm I'm one of the assistant coaches. Uh, College Bound Elite is the name of the team. Uh, So I do it. I support both of my my uh, son's teams. Uh, They're going into seventh grade and uh, into sixth grade. And yeah, both teams are are pretty good. I I believe we're the best team in the state for uh, both age brackets um, and even the age bracket above. Uh, but they're a really good team, and uh, they have a lot of good kids on it. That kind of helps a lot. And uh, but a part of that is uh, we put a lot of energy into helping them develop the kids and keeping them kind of moving to the next level. So I, I don't know if any of the coaches are watching. I highly doubt it. But Ronnie, hey, Nick, hey, John, hey, Q, hey, they're not, <laughs> Terrence, uh, hey. They're not interested in digital transformation. I think I think they're I think they're all along the line of their own individual transformation journey so they right. may you never know you never know they might be on that right. <laughs> well they can always watch it on demand after the fact right. they do happen in this right. list. um right. well good so so um so i guess just to start maybe set the context for for the conversation here today um you know we talked about how you're a former college athlete which is a big deal you know most right. most people that play in high school or in, in elementary school leading up to college they don't they don't compete at that level. So that's, that's a whole nother level that a lot of people don't compete at, or most, most athletes don't ever compete at. And now you're a youth basketball coach of a very good team here in the, in the United States. But how would you say that, you know, based on all this work you've done as a coach and as an athlete, and then now as a consultant, consulting to organizations and seeing all the politics and stuff that goes on there, um, how do the general concepts of coaching apply or could they apply to digital transformations or business transformation journeys that, that organizations are going through? You know, for me, it, it starts with development. I, I, and this is actually what I initially connected with real estate. Uh, one of the reasons why I moved here uh, was for real estate. And the very idea of real estate is great to develop real estate development it is the idea that you got this blanket lot. There's nothing there and you build and you make something special. Uh, that's the the arc of development. It's there in real estate. It's there in software, uh, and it's a core part of digital transformation journey. But 
um, the, at the heart of all of it is development. And uh, the fact that you grow into your future, not necessarily, it doesn't, it's not there to begin with, right? It's almost like it's not an entitlement, right? It's not, you're not born with it. Like the lot is vacant. It's not there already. You have to put hard work and uh, planning and, um, and and all of that sort of amounts into what is ultimately there. And that's what digital transformation is. It's, it's I know we're not there right now. Uh, we have to get there. Uh, it's going to take some work to get there. And you put in that little bit and you consistently put in that little bit to change and to transform. And it's not a singular thing. Uh, I think, you know, some organizations, they, they do need to lean on, on, on certain others. Like you know, leaning on us is okay for that guidance because it turns into, and this is just part of the dynamics of teamwork, it turns into just that. Like we're, we're in this together. Like like the, the final piece we can all celebrate in and say that, 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 that we did it together. So uh, a core part of all of that for me, and uh, and I love it even with you coaching, is just watching kids just struggle with something and just say, no, I, I know you don't know how to do this right now, but you will if you keep at it and uh, just showing them the right way to kind of go about it and watching their game change, the confidence grows, and ultimately they become more productive players um, just by doing those little things that, um, that they need to do in order to be successful or learning how to, I guess, repping those little things. Yeah, you're, you're triggering some additional questions I'm shouting. <laughs> no, you're good. So uh, that's that's really interesting. And I, I agree. And I, and I guess, you know, sort of an overarching question that I have, you know, as, as we were talking about this particular discussion, you know, sort of a thing I'm always fascinated by is when you look at something like sports, it's so it's so cut and dry. Either you win or you lose. You've got a scoreboard. You've got stats you're tracking. Um, you know how individuals are performing and contributing to the to the team success or not. Mm-hmm. And so it's very tangible. It's very cut and dry. But then you look at digital transformation, business transformation, and it's mm-hmm. really kludgy. It's vague. It's ambiguous. And there's not a scoreboard per se for a lot of organizations. So how do you you know? Do you have any thoughts on what you've seen work where you might translate that? sort of uh, scoreboard mentality or winning, I hate to say winning and losing, but winning and losing mentality to something that's a little bit less. Yeah, like a I, would, I would say if you look at games as the little things, then I think it gets a little clearer. I mean, a game, you win a game, you lose a game. But over the course of the, 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 the journey, a, a game is small. I saw a stat of the Cincinnati Bengals and the Jacksonville Jaguars for uh, football, American football, um, played yesterday. And the quarterback for the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars, Trevor Lawrence, they put up a stat that says he's 0-4 this year. And that is more losses that he suffered in both high school and college. So he's lost more games this one season than he has his entire high school and college journey. And, and, it's a, and it's an amazing stat. But if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, even this slice is small when you think about his career, right? Even you can say the same thing about a guy like Peyton Manning and all the losses that he accumulated early in his career. Nobody really remembers them. He does, I'm sure. But you don't really remember them. You, you see the great player that he turned into and all the teams that he took to a championship. So if you look at a game as a, as a detail from a business perspective, right, then you look at those details and you say things like, you know, we either prepare for that detail 
or we're not prepared for that detail, right? We're either really good at that or we're not really good at that at the at the moment, right? And all of that is to me a win or a loss in a in a small micro moment. But over the course of the entire transformation, right, you, you have to keep in mind that that those L's are are lessons. And you 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 have to keep in, you know, as you kind of go through these things and you, you don't necessarily do well at one thing or the other, or you identify those areas of your organization that aren't particularly good at something, those are lessons uh, on your journey to being where you need to be. So identifying those are critical, you know, and then being able to do the development work, do the planning work necessary uh, to turn that weakness into a win so that you're prepared for that end result, that transformation during that championship, that, that win on the back end, that's really, really important versus the details that you don't may or may not be ready for um, at the current moment. Yeah, that's a good, good, a good point. All right, thanks, Khalid. We're going to take a quick break, and I've got more questions for you when we come back. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here interviewing Khalid Morris, and we're talking about the connection between sports and digital transformation in this whole concept of winning and performance and all that good stuff. So let's just jump right back into the interview. And it also triggers another thought around, um, you know, these little, little things that you talk about, these, these little details that you work on the fundamental mm -hmm. skills, the, you know, in basketball, you know, dribbling, shooting, defending all that, all that stuff. And there's obviously within just those buckets, there's obviously tons of little details, but with transformations, a lot of times, you have a couple of problems. One is a lot of times organizations don't know what the important details are, or they, they get caught up in the wrong details, right. um, or they just, um, they're just spread so thin that they, they miss out on those details. And I think that's a really important point to bring up because I think that's where a lot of companies fail in their implementations or their transformations is in the little things. It's not the big strategic things. Oftentimes it's the, the little since, thing. So what, what are your thoughts? Since, since we're going with these analogies, I think it's, you know, it's, it's important to know that even great players need coaches, you know, like, you know, some of the, I think one of the biggest, I heard Isaiah Thomas talk about this with respect to Isaiah, to uh, LeBron James, but he had mentioned that if you look at the great players, they all had great coaching. So if you look at Jordan, uh, historically, you know, the, the magic, they all had these, these, these coaches that you can kind of point, these Hall of Fame type of coaches. And, and LeBron was sort of, he was making the analogy say, that's how great he is. He doesn't even have that. <laughs> like He doesn't have this amazing, you know, Bobby Knight or, you know, Pat Riley to sort of say, you know, this is the guy, Phil Jackson, this is the guy, Dean Smith. These are the guys that, 
coached me into learning the game a certain way, right? LeBron didn't really have those pillars, but he's still, you know, a, a Mount Rushmore kind of kind of basketball player. And it's amazing. So I, I say that to say great players, even great players need coaches, right? Keeping LeBron aside, even great players need coaches. And I think that with organizations, uh, a lot of the times, and I've been on sites where, you know, consulting has sort of, you know, not been, I won't, I won't talk about the client, but has, hasn't been welcome. Right? They're kind of like, well, you know, we, we got it. We know what we're doing. You know, we, we, we kind of don't necessarily need a consultant to kind of come in or a consulting company to kind of come in. My boss may think that that's necessary, but I don't. And I, I think that it's when you get that independent view, that, that third party view, it, that guidance, I think you only get enhanced. Right. And even if you're great. Because you already know what you do well, and they're coming in and sharing you gaps, sharing gaps with you, identifying these areas. So these are areas that you can get bad at to take your organization to an even uh, to an even higher level. I think it's important for organizations to take heed to that guidance, kind of put it into their own kit. Like I already got a big kit of things I do great. I'm gonna put that in it, and I'm gonna do even better, and just sort of maximize uh, the growth, maximize the the. Um, you know, where an organization can kind of go. So to that, I would say, yeah, even organizations need coaches. Everyone needs guidance, just like everyone needs a mom and dad. Like everyone kind of needs someone to kind of say, look, man, I, why don't you look in this left direction? Why don't you look, you know, my my, my son, he loves to go left. I always kind of tell him, why don't you look at the right side? There's nothing wrong. You're great at going left. You'll always be great at going right, the, uh, left. Why don't you go left and look right and if nothing is over there go over there too because there's a big court out here and you can go both ways <laughs> yeah that's, that's good good advice so, so i guess you know what it sounds like you're saying is that organizations and their leaders and project team members that are part of these these transformations they need to be open to coaching and they need to recognize that even if they're really good and they've been through this time a few times before they still can benefit from having someone coach. It, it'd be like, I guess, to to not want to do that would be a lot like the player on a team who says, no, I'm actually really good, so I don't need a coach. So I, I've got this coach. You just right. go coach someone else. If, I'm, I'm good. If, if the goal is, and transformation goal is equivalent to a championship, right? So if your goal is to win a championship, you have to be open to that guidance, right? If, if for nothing, if for no other reason, it's because you want all parts of your organization to pull in the right in the same direction. Uh, so part of that is making sure everyone is aligned. That that is there's a certain level of sacrifice that's required with that. So even if you're a great basketball player, you know you you might be able to do everything on the basketball court. You may know I I do everything on the basketball court, but this person is going to have to do this part. I'm going to have to take care of that part. And this other person is going to have to take care of that. And we're going to have to talk to each other to make sure that everyone knows what everyone is doing so that we're all pulling in the right direction. That is a, that is a, uh, a, that is, that is sort of path, like a framework, a template for how do you win a championship? Well, you know, everyone understands your role and you sort of play together. It's the same way with organizations. And if you're trying to, have that digital transformation on the other end you need to identify the things that you need to do as a part of what you need to 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 lock down in order to accomplish that as well as every other person or every other part of the department or, or whatnot so we're locking hands and we're doing this together it's not a 
a singular mission. And so, and so, yeah, you might be great at something, but you know, let's look at this from an organizational perspective. Let's look at it. Let's let's look at what we're trying to accomplish, and then let's talk about what you're great at. And then let's also talk about what you need to do. Maybe you're not great at it, or maybe you just haven't been doing that because that just hasn't been part of your job description. Well, now, in order for us to get to where we need to be, it now has to be a part of your job description, right? So so sharing those roles, defining those roles, because in organizations, we're not as communicative as maybe we are on the court, on the basketball court. I'm always telling young younger players, you got to talk if you listen to pros. Pros are vocal. If you are sitting courtside um, at a basketball game and an NBA game or a professional game, you're just going to hear talking, talking, talking. And most of it, you know, you may think, oh, they're talking trash. Most of it is not. Most of it is I'm talking to my teammate. I'm letting him know I'm on my left. I'm on his left side. I'm letting him know I'm in help. I let him letting him know that, you know, don't worry about force the guy my way or, you know, I'm going to push him your way or you get the rebound. I'm on the wing. Just throw it, you know. You you constantly have to talk to your teammates so that they know where you are, and that's that's what keeps teams in sync, and that's what lets everybody know things. You even talk to your coaches, saying this is what I'm seeing. Your coaches saying this is what I'm seeing. I mean, it's a consistent talkative effort. And in business, oddly enough, there's not a lot of talking all the time. You know, sometimes we have collaboration issues uh, amongst each other. Sometimes we we relegate everything to an email. Versus to, to to be able to kind of open up and kind of you know voice or kind of talk you know about it right next to each other right we used to, there's a couple studies I saw about you know uh, organizations that are sitting in queues and they're emailing each other right next it's like how come you can't just tell them <laughs> just lean over and just say hey you know blah 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 but but it's important to kind of have those communication points and I just feel like that's missing a lot in, um, in a lot of these dynamics. And, and, and when you define those roles and you have those communication, everybody knows what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing, this is what you're doing. And then having adjustments along that way, I know you're doing this, I'm also gonna need you to do this. And everybody's working towards that goal, then you get there. If, if you're in isolation and you're just doing, well, this is what I do and I'm really good at it, then you don't get there. And it just sort of leaves gaps in your organization. Yeah. Yeah, you know, a couple things or a couple threads. You had sort of the the first part of your response is focused on sort of that strategic alignment and planning. And then you were getting into more what I would call the execution when you're out on the court. You know, how do you pivot? How do you adjust, communicate mm-hmm. you sort of in real time? And so you've got two layers there. And so maybe if we start with that first layer of, of call it strategy and planning for a transformation, mm-hmm. that's much like a sports team that wants to win a championship. And to win the championship, they need to beat, you know, whoever the other contender is and that contender has strengths and weaknesses. You've got strengths and weaknesses and you come up with a game plan of how are we going to beat these guys or, or gals. And so um, it kind of gets to that whole concept of putting together a strategy, a playbook. You know, how does that whole concept of planning and, in, in, you know, the playbook concept relate to. You know, what's what's funny is when you think about a digital transformation, uh, it's kind of outside the organization. Like you, you have a mission, your organization has a mission, they have goals, they've been functioning for a long period of time up to this point. And then somebody or, or some group of people, usually a consultant or somebody comes in and says, you guys need, let's talk about your transformation. <laughs> let's talk about your transformation journey. And it's just like, you, we've been successful up until this point. I know you have, I know you have, but you know, it's kind of like you have a new opponent. Opponent, your 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 competition is different right now. You know, your your competition is doing things that you aren't doing in the marketplace, and that's who you're going up against. In effect, a new game, 
And because you have a new game, we're going to have a new playbook. We're going to have a transformation journey that we're going to throw in the middle of this. I know you've been successful, but now we have to get prepared for for this opponent and um, and and what you're going to have to do tomorrow to be successful. And and that's that's a hard concept for a lot of organizations to really wrap their mind around, like uh, the idea of you know it's it's not a knock it's not a negative to say that you know we're we're doing something that we've never done before like that is a normal part of that's a part of survival uh, certainly in the business world you always have to change Success, successful businesses are always changing they're always learning i love um organizations that embrace that and understand that 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 we're always going to change and uh, we're, we're, we're going to be ready for tomorrow. And, and being ready for tomorrow is exactly what you're saying. It's that digital transformation, for example, and saying, okay, all right, here's a, here's the new transformation playbook. We're going to have some new roles, new responsibilities just for this game. And we're going to have to do things a little bit differently. And in order to do that, we're going to do some practice stages and, and reps so that everyone understands what their new role is going to be. This is the defense we're going to play. And we'll have the zone. Uh, a screw, right? Maybe they're not good shooters, and so we're going to throw in zones here, or maybe we're going to press them, or, or or whatever the case may be. But it's all a part of this new playbook. And I know we didn't do that in the last few games, but we're going to have to do it this next game. And so that articulation and then that concentration of all hands getting put in, again, all hands on deck with that particular goal in mind, is uh, kind of what makes successful teams successful. They're always ready for the challenge, despite the fact that it could be a great challenge. And I, I think organizations should embrace that, that mentality, almost um, patriot-like. The patriots are, you know, you talk about a, a, a playbook, you know, in football, I love football playbooks because they're huge, like a thousand pages. It's kind of like, you know, this this huge book that you kind of have to read, right? And, and they give you this in the off season and they say, okay, here's this huge book that you have to read, let you know everything you need to know about us and all the plays we're gonna run this season. Well, um, often from what I, I gather from the Patriots, they do that like every week. So it's like just a new playbook every single week. Like it's whatever we were talking about last week, we're doing nothing like that now. <laughs> we're not running the ball this this week. We are going to throw a gazillion times and we're going to throw here a gazillion times. And then they rep that. And 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 that's part of why they've been able to be so successful because they've, they've been able to get all, I guess, 53 guys, the entire organization aligned to an, a, a, a new way of playing or sort of a new way of thinking every single week so you never really know what they're going to do it's it's kind of this brand new attack it's it's a brand new, i've never seen you guys do this before well you we never needed to but we're going to do it this week you know it's kind of their attitude and and, and I, I love that model and i think more again more organizations should adopt that um, as it relates to digital transformation right you just go through it and you're going to have to go through it again so just go through it be the new you, you live in that space so long as that's competitive, and then you adjust again as you kind of need to as the world changes around you. And, you know, if nothing else, we should know now from a COVID perspective, you can't prepare for what tomorrow looks like, right? You just sort of, you just sort of model it, you just sort of say, okay, all right, this is what we're going to do tomorrow. Tomorrow comes, tomorrow could be very different. <laughs> you know, comes, you're like, okay, we prepared to do it this way. Now we're going to have to adjust again to do it that way. So being able to adjust is, I think, paramount to, to being a successful organization. And when you start talking transformation journey, to be able to cut that down and say, let's have shorter transformation journeys 
Let's let let's be able to do this quickly. Let's not take five years to transform. Let's 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 be able to make these transformations in shorter intervals. I think you you allow your organization the, the kind of adaptability and flexibility to be prepared for whatever happens in the future. Yeah, yeah, those are great points. And it's almost like when you're going through a transformation, or if you're about to go through a transformation, it's it's the equivalent of a sports team that has been playing the regular season or even maybe the preseason all you know, all along. And now all of a sudden they have to go face the defending champs. You know, it's yeah. that you have to be able to step it up now and say, okay, we've been successful as an organization, but this is a, this whole concept of transformation is a totally different op- opponent than we've mm-hmm. ever faced before. It's going to be really difficult. And so we need to adjust our playbook and, and go from there. And a huge part of that is openness and, and even a certain amount of humility and understanding that, you know, you may not know, how to do it, right? You, you, you may, and I, we come across this a lot um, from organizational perspective with respect to skill sets. So, your skill set may be more aligned one way than the other. Like, what does that mean, right? In sports, sometimes that means you may not play this week. Right? Like, you may not be a key contributor. You may be a key contributor the week after, right? Because we need you, right? But it's every player can kind of adjust. We need more shooting today we may need more defense or may need more speed today or whatever the case may be. So you kind of have to make those adjustments, right? But in organizational settings, that might be more of a skill reference, like certain skills you may have to go learn, right? You may have to bring in more support for other parts of that. And it's okay. I think that's part of being flexible and being able to be dynamic Um, because like I said, you know, those intervals can be short. So just like we made that adjustment to prepare for, this transformation journey, we may have to go through another transformation journey, maybe not the exact same one, right? Like maybe we've succeeded in doing whatever this journey's goal is, but we have a a new goal, uh, a a kind of a different transformation journey that we have to kind of conduct, you know, three years from now. And, And then you sort of your skills come into play in a different way. So you have to be flexible and open to making adjustments in what you do at work and learning new things. It's actually one of the things I loved about technology and why I started to become a more technical resource, why I started to learn some of those things is I just would say yes. They would come to me and say, look, man, I I, I need you to do something. I know you've never done this before, but nobody's around to do it. Would you be willing to, you know, learn this new code or, you know, would you be willing to um, take a, sl- a shot at designing out what our architecture should look like for data. And I was always kind of personally just say, sure, <laughs> sure, I'll do it. Yeah, let me let me let me see what I go with, you know, and, and I would just do it. And that would sort of build out skill. And I think from an organization perspective, uh, the employees should not be nervous about building skill. It only makes you more dynamic. So if you know one system and someone is coming in saying, OK, here's a new system, open up to it. Now, you know, two systems as opposed to one. It's not a negative. It just makes you more marketable. Uh, so being open to it, embracing the challenge, and uh, and then kind of just going forward in effect with a new game plan. Like here's the new playbook. Here's the new game plan for how we're going to uh, tackle this um, this transformation journey. And then just kind of going through it. I think that uh, that kind of because oftentimes I hear or I have heard in the workplace at times. You know, that's not my job. That's not what I do. I'm not really I like to do it this way. I like to do it that. You know, it's it's it is. I think it's it's your job to be open, and it's your job to grow 
and to learn and to develop and to keep getting better at what it is that you do. And so expand your skill set and uh, open up to the fact that uh, we're going to try something new tomorrow and and you're going to be a critical part of it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Khalid. We're going to take a quick break and I've got more questions for you when we come back. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here interviewing Khalid Morris and we're talking about the connection between sports and digital transformation and this whole concept of winning and performance and all that good stuff. So let's just jump right back into the interview. Now you're talking about the little things and learning and being open, you know, that's sort of the theme you've been talking about. And we actually have a a question from the audience I wanted to touch on here. And this is from uh, Bernard over on LinkedIn. Um, he asked the questions of what tips can you provide for those who are in a career change to per- pursue digital transformation? And I actually get that question a lot. People mm-hmm. ping me on LinkedIn a lot. Like, how do I get into digital transformation? What skills should I learn? You know, so if I'm going with that coaching openness mentality, I want to be coached. I want to learn. What are some of the things that you would suggest to someone who isn't in this transformation space, but wants to be? You know, I've always likened um, technology uh, technology career to Texas, and that, and that may seem a little bit dry and weird, but you know, I couldn't imagine like being a tax accountant, uh, especially having been a, an accountant. Like being a tax accountant in particular just makes me vomit. And the idea is because the tax code is so dry and bland, and it changes all the time. It's like, how am I supposed to know about the new? You know, some new new code change that occurred, right? And and what they do is they read a lot. Tax <laughs> accountants end up getting up on a lot of new changes um, with respect to the tax code. And you then know a good one because they're able to wrap those up to you. Like, oh, this year it's like this. Oh, last year it was like that. Or two years ago, and you're like, how do you know this? Why do you know this? Are you reading that? Don't you have something better to read? Whatever. This is what they do, right? And I, I think technology is very similar in that the, the technical landscape changes all the time. And you have to be willing to learn the new changes. So the quicker you can get in, actually, if you just sort of bypass the, I don't wanna give you, you know, bad advice here, but if you if you think about the, the top, the most current, those are the things that nobody knows, right? So the things at the bottom, those are the things that everybody has been able to to have kind of years of experience on and that sort of thing. But, you know, you take some of the stuff at the very, very top, 
Nobody knows that yet, <laughs> you know? So there's so many levels to get into technology. I would say you A, have to be open, you have to go learn. Uh, YouTube is right there. Uh, the internet is full. The one thing about uh, technology is everything's online already on technology and it kind of has to be. And so there's no shortage of space to learn. And so my, uh, uh, my advice would be to learn, uh, to learn the elements of the, the block you want to compete in, right, within the transformation journey on the technical side. And there's so many arts, we can go through them all. I mean, we can go into the actual technical components, we can go into the OCM parts, we can go into all the different layers of what comes up with uh, digital strategy there. But to, to identify the area that you really wanna, wanna work in and then start to learn the particulars um, of that space, I think is the starting block there. And obviously the internet without understanding exactly where he's kind of putting his finger on in that space, it's kind of hard to articulate some technical specifics, but um, I, would, I would highly, highly encourage to just jump in knee deep with or without school to just jump in knee deep into those spaces to really start to blow out what you know about this space and start to become an expert at what it is you're passionate about. Right. Yeah, that's that's sound advice. I'd agree. I'd agree with that. You kind of have to define what back to the sports analogy, what position do you want to play? Right. A team and then hone right. on that. Right. Right. Um what about um so in line with this whole learning training theme um you talked earlier about the little things and how you have to perfect the little things and you might make mistakes and you probably will make mistakes along the way and that's part yeah. of the learning process and journey but when you think about um this whole concept of practicing you know one mm -hmm. of the fundamental components of of any successful sports team even the even the unsuccessful ones do this pretty well they're oftentimes is they, they practice you know they have mm -hmm. regular practices they they run through the plays they do their walkthroughs they watch film they they sort of, you know, I would say obsess about what they did right, what they're doing well, what they could do better and, and uh, how to improve. And, and that practice uh, and the focus on the little things is important. But I don't know that uh, organizations typically think that way, especially project teams that are about to go through this massive sort of transformation. What, what would you recommend to a, to a project team or an executive team that's about to lead a company through a transformation? How can they get that practice? How can they how can they learn, you know, when they haven't, if they haven't been through it before, you know, other than. Well, I, I think for, for starters, uh, certainly in sports, I don't think people realize how organized practices, um, uh, practices is extremely organized, especially at a, at higher levels. As you kind of move up the chain, um, they have practice plans, you know, they'll note out kind of, we're doing this for 10 minutes. We're going to do this for 15. We're going to do this for 30. I mean, these, these, practice plans are pretty blown out across sports um, and it's every day because you know especially for uh, maybe not youth you know uh, sports but you know they may practice once or twice a week but as you move up for more competitive they're practicing every single day and they have football practice plans every single day so they're assessing their environment consistently they'll videotape in college we used to videotape our practices then the coaches would then go watch the videotape after they've watched the practice right and then go develop the next practice plan so they're spending hours preparing for um just one game right or a season or, or whatever their arc is um and so i would say 
that for organizations, I think the, the idea of practicing really starts with being ready. And that's that's really doing assessments, really doing kind of readiness, uh, uh, you know, kind of assessments to identify the places in your organizations where they even need practice, right? Because a lot of the times you don't know, and, and, and particularly for uh, something as ambiguous as, as business, right? Where you have these, these kind of organizations and all these different departments and you've got all these people. It's kind of hard unless you kind of have these amazing analytics tools. It's kind of hard to put your finger on person one and say, this person right here is a valued, you know, every, this person is contributing this much to the overall product design or the, uh, um, the, the, the overall service that, that's being output. It's kind of hard to, to kind of barrel things down into that kind of detail. So it's important that you understand the gaps uh, in your organization first. I think that's a part of practice. And then once you understand those particular gaps, I think then you go through the method of what a kind of a practice plan would look like or what, what it would look like to better prepare this part of my organization for A, B, C, D, or E. And I think that really gets into um, these training simulations. Technology is great about training, uh, creating sandbox environments. Uh, all the development that you do in the um, implementation kind of delivery space prior to kind of going live is in these sandboxes. And a lot of the times organizations are reluctant. A lot of folks sometimes are reluctant to kind of just doodle or, or or work in these sandbox environments, right? And I think it's important to work in these environments in scripted ways, whether or not we're, we're kind of outlining particular uh, routines, use cases that we're trying to model in this sandbox. And a lot of times you're, you're modeling those to kind of figure out gaps again, you know, problems, areas that it, that it doesn't really work for. Um, a lot of times you're trying to model it for areas where there needs to be some improvement and some, uh, some efficiency. Like we'd like this software to be able to do A, B, C, D. Or, or whatever it is, but but being able to kind of work in that sandbox environment is very practice-like. I think it's it's a core part of transformation, and it also gets to the heart of employees buying into the transformation journey rather than kind of being on the side and kind of looking at it or watching a consultant or sort of watching someone else do parts of it and saying, oh, this will be great. Oh, that's, that looks great, but not having their own kind of, you know, buy-in, right? Not having their own involvement with the actual practice but it takes that right like you have to get involved and have your own reps um you know because that's what practice is it's individual reps like i don't want to wait until i have to perform a particular use case to learn a particular you know how does this work in in this new transformation in this new process this new business process right like i should have gone through that several times over you know, multiple times over in basketball, you know, you like to practice something, you know, hundreds of times before you actually do it, you know, and, and, and usually in, in youth sports, I'm trying to tell kids, they like to come down and shoot threes. I'm like, you know, even if they're shooting threes, like, are you shooting them from the areas that you actually practice them, right? Because if you're doing that from areas that you're practicing, that makes more sense to me, but you're just coming down and shooting. Like, when was the last time you shot from there? You know, have you shot uh, a 200, or 300 jump shots from that place like this week. If you haven't, then you're probably going to miss. You're not going to be as comfortable as you think you're going to be from this particular space, right? But if you shoot 200 uh, jump shots, right, you're shooting maybe 
50 or 100 from this one place on the floor and you get into a game-like scenario and you get in that place, well, naturally, yeah, you should shoot it. Right? That's what you do. You already know your numbers. You're either 40% from there or you know 30 or whatever, but you're highly comfortable. So it's important that you're doing things that you've already read. And uh, I think that very much applies to transformation journeys and how in organizations, it's important for uh, the organization to model out the use cases in their new journey um, and to have several reps with that prior to going live. Yeah, and so much of what you're describing is not just the practice and learning, uh, but it's also the, the self-awareness. You know, when you talk about reviewing film and practicing and asking those questions like, have you shot a three-pointer from that spot a hundred right. times this week? You know, it's, it's easy to get into the uh, sort of a false confidence. Like, yeah, I could, uh, like in, a, in the case of a transformation, I'm a good project manager. I can, right. I can, I can lead a digital transformation. Okay. Well, have you ever led one before? No. Okay. Well then that's not to say you should doubt yourself and have no confidence and, just right. team, but you right. just want to be aware that, okay, I'm not, I'm a good project manager, but I've never project managed a digital transformation. So what do I need to be successful? Right. Or, or the, or the idea, you know, even taking something like e-commerce and saying that, yeah, well, yeah, we have e-commerce too. You know, that, that idea that, you know, two things are like when you get into underneath it, it's like, yeah, but you, you have zero control of your website, your e-commerce site doesn't necessarily, um, it's not aligned with your inventory. You kind of have all these, all these gaps in what you're calling e-commerce. And it's like, it's, this is why you need transformation is because uh, you know you do have all these particular gaps that, that that sort of need to be filled in comparison to maybe some other organizations where it's tight, where where they have defined processes for all of these parts that that sort of outline um, something like e-commerce. So I, it, it's self awareness is huge, and it's okay. I think that it's okay, and I think that there's a certain amount of humility that needs to happen uh, for organizations to kind of say we're we're not doing this good enough. And I think that's the beginning of your transformation journey is is admitting that we're we're not getting it done here, and we may not be getting it done here today, but we will uh, in a year from now or two years from now. And that's the beginning. <laughs> that's that's sort of where it starts. That admittance, and then you can kind of say, "All right, well, let's get better at it." And it's very important for athletes to 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 do that. And and even when you hear pros, pros are extremely honest about what it is that they do well and what it is that they don't. Do. And they know, look, I, I, if the person is standing in a corner and shooting threes all day, that's what they practice. It's like they're not coming down trying to dribble between their legs. You don't see P.J. Tucker kind of coming down trying to trying to dribble a gazillion times between his legs or around his back or doing a bunch of stuff that he doesn't know how or doesn't practice, right? You see him saying, my job is to play great defense and to sit here in this corner and knock down and be the best corner three-point shooter in the entire league. And and, and that's self-awareness, uh, you know, and understanding not just self-awareness, but the role that the team needs you to play. And 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 when those two meet, I think then you have a, a, a championship type of player, championship type of person that, that is ready to do their role to the highest degree. And uh, I think that's important. So no, you're, you're hitting the hammer on the head with self-awareness. I, I don't think you can have true transformation without having self-awareness. Yeah, yeah, agreed. All right, thanks, Khalid. We're gonna take a quick break and I've got more questions for you when we come back. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here interviewing Khalid Morris, and we're talking about the connection between sports and digital transformation in this whole concept of winning and performance and all that good stuff. So let's just jump right back into the interview. Now you're, you're alluding to another thread. This is probably the, the last major thread I want to uh, pull on here in this discussion, but um, I want to talk about teams a little bit, you know, when you're, when you're building mm -hmm. a team, you know, obviously you have to have the right talent, the right skills, but you also need the right, the right chemistry. Let's start with that first part. You know, when you're building a sports team, obviously, if you don't have any good shooters, or you, you don't, you need to beef up your defense. Mm -hmm. You can do one of two things. You could train your existing people to just get better at defense or become mm -hmm. better shooters or whatever the case may be, or you could go acquire someone, bring someone on the team that is really good at those things. So how would you apply, you know, sort of this whole concept of putting together a winning team for a transformation? What kind of advice would you give to the organization? Well, you know, for organizations, it's, it's a little challenging because a lot of people don't think in terms of teams and they don't think in terms of teamwork or they think, oh, we all work at the same company, so we're all on the same team. I mean, yeah, but the dynamics change, right? Like you're talking about an individual project or you're getting on a transformation and it's like, okay, we're all a part of steering this transformation journey. It's almost like a separate team. It's almost like a, a smaller uh, a unit. And so with every single team, I think the first thing you have to really think about, even less skill, uh, it, it, because, you know, sometimes you're limited to the skills you have. Maybe you don't have shooters. So how are you going to win? Are you just going to lose every single game because your, your, your game plan is to shoot a bunch of three-pointers and you don't have three-point shooters? No, you, you still have to figure out ways to be successful for your team. And I think a large part of that is your chemistry and, and, and how you guys work. So culture is a huge part of having a successful team. You've never seen a team win a championship with a bad kind of culture. They're, 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 there's, they, they usually have great culture. They usually have great chemistry, usually know each other like the back of their hands. They usually talk um, a, a ton, right? And all of that fits into what I would call culture. And I think what a lot of, of, of projects in general, of business projects fail to see is that the culture of your organization is different than the culture of your project, right? You can have a amazing organization, great culture, and everybody's doing things. You're putting baby pictures on the wall, and there are hugs and kisses everywhere, and everyone loves each other. You get on a project, and then it's a different ballgame. It might be people that don't know each other or don't talk much or from different departments or whatever the case may be. So how do they relate? Because if they don't have the chemistry necessary to be successful, then it's going to rear its head over the course of that particular project, right? Either through dissension or difference of opinions or not being able to 
to do conflict resolution appropriately or you know not understanding the roles and responsibilities right etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. so for for me i think it starts with making sure that the culture is good making sure that the chemistry is good and 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 doing those kind of activities to sort of bond the group and to keep everybody level and kind of saying look we're we're, we're going to be a team and we're, we're, we're not going to just be individuals running around here, <laughs> you know, but, but we're going to support each other and kind of be a great, um, a, a great team. And once you kind of have that part in place, then you can kind of go into the pieces that I think a transformation needs, uh, which is some of those definitions um, where everyone is sort of understanding um, what our goals are, what our objectives are, what, what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, what the roles and responsibilities are, even identifying the skill sets to say that, you know, you're great at this, so you'll do this. You're great at that, so you'll do that. And I think when you have that, everyone's that culture, a good culture, then people are willing to do that. They're not thinking about it from, oh, this is, you know, I already have a job and I don't know how to do this. I don't feel like learning this extra stuff. That's not what a good teammate would say, right? That's some that's someone who's thinking about their individual kind of space versus a, a good teammate say, no, I'm going to do that because that's what's necessary for the team, right? So so I think you start with building the right culture and then you can kind of go into those fits to say, now that we're all on the same page and we're all a part of one unit and we all understand that, now we can talk about what we need each other to do to be successful in this particular. Um, and, and, and in order to kind of get there, I think you do need to understand what are you already good at and then we can kind of see those gaps see if we need to bring someone else in, see if you need to get some adjustments. You know, you can kind of go through all of that skill assessment work that's necessary to see, are we ready to win? Are we ready to kind of, kind of have a great transformation? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk through that because even our own clients, I, I would say they don't spend enough time defining you know, we, we spend a lot of time as a, as a consulting firm, we'll spend a lot of time analyzing the culture of a company and looking right. at, okay, here's your culture and here's how you're trying to bend the culture. But when it comes to the team itself, you know, you kind of look back to the sports analogy, you know, winning and losing team chemistry. It's almost like you've got a team here and this may sound counterintuitive. It may not be a perfect analogy, but you've got a, you've got a transformation team where you've got to have good chemistry, high performance because right. you're out to, you're out to, play an opponent and the opponent by the way oftentimes is the rest of your organization and that sounds like it sounds like exactly the kind of culture you don't want to create right, right. but in essence that is kind of what you're doing you're creating a strong team that can not go defeat the rest of the organization but right. resistance and bend the culture the way they need to and all that good stuff so you know i'm just wondering uh you know have you seen are there any tactics that you've seen or that you could think of that might apply just to a transformation team themselves to make sure that you've got strong chemistry. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like de de developing software. So if you think about product life cycle um, and the design work is required up front, if you don't do enough design work up front, right, then everything goes goes to the toilet <laughs> right, on the on the on the back end because you start discovering things that you didn't really know. So I, I think you do that work up front. And you do, I think that's a great analogy. And it's not even just specific to organizations. This is just business. Like I've been doing consulting 
since 07. And, and you've been doing consulting even longer. You've been a part of teams, project teams, and the culture has been just absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. We'll put on a great face for the for the client and <laughs> everyone's kind of, you know, talking the right way. But then once we leave the client, it's just absolute train wreck. Just I'm not doing that. You do this. You go here. I'm not. I don't, you know, all kind of just nonsense that happens. And so you, you when you when you start that arc, I think you got to have those sit downs. You got to have those team building activities. You got to have those, even if it doesn't have to be elaborate, you know, to go to a resort somewhere and, you know, you know, climb a pole or something and have somebody support you, right? It doesn't have to be crazy, right? But you do have to have a consistent amount of work up front that bonds the people in the room and, um, and gets them to sort of smile and, and work together and understand that, you know what, I'm here to support you and you're here to support me and we're here for to, to do the work required to win. And then you go into your organization and fight those those battles, which sometimes you're even your own friends, to your point, right? These are your own colleagues that you know are, are providing resistance, right? But you have more support when you know that your 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 working transformation team is supporting you. And I, I think some of that is outside the space of you know the transformation components and, and just the normal space of are we a solid enough team are we a strong enough team to to go into this organization and do the work that needs to be done in an exceptional way right and and i think far too often the answer to that is no and that makes the the challenge that much more difficult right yeah and a lot of times it all starts with the uh the leadership of Mm -hmm. the organization that they set the tone for the culture of the overall organization, but especially the, the transformation project team. And then back to your point about coaches, you know, if you have the right coach, I mean, that's going to yeah. have a pretty significant influence on the. the I think it's, I actually liken it more to coaching than leadership because a lot of the times, you know, you don't, you don't always know what you don't know and you can have a strong leader and just have a bad team. And, and it's just because you didn't do the work. It's not because you're a bad leader. It's not because maybe you just didn't know to, or there wasn't time to. So you can have that. And I think when you have a good coach and when you have good guidance, that's when you don't miss those points, right? Because I think a good, a good coach will be able to come in and say, well, this is, this is, it's almost like, uh, you, you don't, you don't go into a season, um, and start playing games. You don't start practicing a week before your first game. You just say, okay, all right, well, now we're ready to go. No, you have a, you, you sort of prepare. You kind of have, at least in college, we would do March Madness. I don't, I don't know if you know or are familiar with March Madness, but March Madness would mark the start of the basketball season, right? That's when the first day of actual practice begins. And you can now go into the regimen of practice, which you'll do for maybe four to six weeks before you even play a single, uh, probably just about four weeks before you actually play a game. Actually, practice starts in September when you get back on campus, right? Then you're, you're starting to go through your track, your conditionings, your strength and conditioning pieces. You're doing all of that work. And then you start your midnight madness practice. Then you're kind of going into, you know, the, the routine of practicing continually and that sort of thing, right? But that prep work was done. So it's not like you're coming into the first practice out of shape or, you know, you're, you're, you're this or you're that. No, you've already ran sprints. You're, I don't have to worry about you. You know, I know that you can handle the demands that are, um, that I'm going to lay on you um, from this in terms of practice. And so that prep is required. And I think when you have a good coach, you have that plan and say, no, I'm going to, 
in order to get these guys ready, right? We're, we're going to do this prep stuff early. We're going to make sure we're all on the same page, right? You have those kickoff meetings. You kind of have those kind of kind of prep points, right? Before you actually engage in actual activity. And then you kind of, now that we're all on the same page, now that we're holding hands and we all understand that we're all part of the same team, you know, now we can kind of go out into the field and, and, and actually do the work required to have a successful transformation journey. All right. Thanks, Khalid. Thanks for being on the show. Really like having you here uh, for your first appearance on Transformation Ground Control. And there's a lot to talk about, a lot to unpack from what we just talked about uh, with with uh, Kyler. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, episode number 38. New episodes every Wednesday on YouTube and all the usual podcast platforms like Amazon, Google, Spotify, Etc. And uh, so, Kyler, we just had this good conversation, really interesting and quite frankly, a fun conversation with Khalid talking about the connection and the analogy of sports, winning, team performance, team chemistry, all that stuff with change and transformation within a business setting. And so on the surface, it sounds like it might be a stretch to be connecting, you know, basketball and football back to digital transformation or business transformation. But I, th- I thought it was a I thought it was an interesting connection. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think the the more the conversation kind of um, evolved, it made a lot of sense. Not only from you know a team and, and human management on on the people side, but also from just the process side of of really we have assets called you know the business transformation playbook. So really a a, a very similar thing. Um, I love that you share that connection through your son's basketball team. So. You were at the the conference together, and and Khalid, it sounds like he teaches or he coaches like an elite team. Is that right? Yeah, they're very good. Uh, they're I think they're ranked like one of the, if not the best, at that for that age bracket in the in the state of Colorado, which is where uh, you and I are and where he is too. So yeah, they're they're very good team. They the teams that played them really didn't have much of a chance. I almost I almost felt bad for their opponents because it was just like, what do you what do you do against yeah. <laughs> that that talent? Yeah, well, good. That that must have been really cool to watch. It's an interesting connected connection too. I know you met him at DU, and and my dad actually played basketball at DU, so it was fun for me to to listen to. And my brother played baseball there, so lots of sports connections um, on that level. But I thought I might uh, just ask when you are looking for leaders within your organization, and I know Eric, you've been transparent of about in, in other business ventures, you haven't always selected the best leaders. 
So when you are looking for transformation leaders on that third stage side, is coaching one of those things that that you do consider or having that ability to kind of coach clients through a transformation from a resourcing perspective? Yeah, it, it definitely catches my eye. I mean, whenever someone has on their CV or, or res, resume that they are a youth coach or they used to be a coach, or even if they're not a coach, but they used to play, um, you know, a significant amount of, of team sports, uh, I, I do find that uh, appealing. And then much, quite honestly, much in the same way, I would find someone that has a, you know, a lean, a lean Six Sigma black belt certification or a pro size certification. To me, coaching and or, you know, significant uh, athletic background, that's, that's very appealing because it just, you know, I, and I see it more having kids. I, I quite honestly, I mentioned before, I was not a team sports guy. I, in hindsight, kind of wish I would have been, but I, I did cross country and track, which is individual sports. And, um, and I just wasn't tall enough, big enough or athletic enough to play basketball or football. But, um, having younger kids, teenage kids that are much more athletic than I ever was, but seeing them learn basketball and American football and even soccer when they're a lot younger, they don't play that anymore, but football and basketball are their two main sports and just watching them develop and learn and how they interact with the team and, you know, how they learn to communicate with their team and how they build the chemistry at such a young age and growing up that it's been really fascinating and eye-opening. And it's actually uh, helped me a lot as a leader, I think, is to kind of see the, the early formative years of a, of a young athlete and how they can, you know, how that all evolves and where the breakdowns happen. Um, my son, for example, my older son, for example, was on this team last year, a, a club basketball team that just, they were really talented kids, but they just did not communicate on the court. They wouldn't yell for help. They wouldn't, you kind of tell each other what they were doing. They were just a real quiet team, but very talented. And they had trouble winning because they just, they weren't communicating. They, they weren't all on the same page. So it was interesting to see those uh, stumbles as well, you know, in addition to when they, when they do well. So I, to answer your question, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a, a very strong skill set that's very applicable to consulting and any sort of leadership role, to be honest. Yeah. And I assume that's important when you have to kind of go into an organization in a high stress situation, similar to, you know, right at the buzzer, or those types of things, and learning how to have those interpersonal relationships, I assume is really important under kind of those high stress, um, those high stress times, or even those failure points, as Khalid mentioned, is being able to go through a failure with your team or a loss and say, you know, what are we going to do next time? So that was something I kind of wanted to unpack with you because we put out so much content and recommendations for our listeners and our audience of how to avoid failures. Is there ever a good time to fail? And, you know, how do you kind of stand up from that as Khalid talked about, you know, growing from failure? Yeah. And I, that was an area actually in the discussion, I kind of if we had more time, I would have liked to go deeper into because, you know, the thing with sports is, you know, it's, it's, first of all, like we talked about in the discussion, it's very cut and dry. There's a scoreboard with very clear metrics and you either win or you lose. And if you lose, you're not happy. And if you win, you probably are. Um, you also have game film that you can go back and review and, you know, feedback from your, your teammates and your coaches and all that stuff. Um, you're, you're missing a lot of that in, in transformation. So you have to do your best to try and replicate that sort of environment the best you can. So, you know, one example of a way that we've seen organizations create that sort of, uh, we'll call it, we'll call it like more of a preseason, a learning experience where it's not the, the, the stakes are lower. Um, 
if you if you have to fail, that's the place to fail. You don't want to fail when you get to regular season or, or the playoffs, to go with that analogy. So if you can do a pilot that's a small pilot uh, of your transformation or your change initiative, um, you've sort of isolated risk, and you can use that as a learning uh, mechanism to say, we're going to go do this pilot. It's probably not going to be perfect. Hopefully we succeed, but even if we do succeed, there's going to be lessons and things we, we could improve going forward. And let's make sure we pivot off of those lessons. And so um, that can be a, a very powerful example of how you could sort of take some of those sports concepts and apply it to this whole concept of learning. And if we need to fail, fail there. Don't fail on the big, you know, massive transformation that's affecting, you know, a majority of your revenue stream or whatever the case may be. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. Um, and and growth from those those failures um, and, you know, capturing that, right, and being able to integrate it into your overall implementation when, you know, when it's game time, if you will, um, go live time. I loved the analogy you were kind of talking about when it comes to American football, um, which I'm a huge fan. So here in, in American football, we have three rookie quarterbacks that actually start for NFL teams. And the other day, um, Zach Williams, who, who went to BYU um, and was one of the first round picks for the Jets, he got sacked, which for those of you that aren't familiar with American football, that's where the defense tackles the quarterback. He got sacked nine times in one game. And that is tying the NFL record. And you're just watching this poor kid, you know, just go down and down and down and getting back up. But I felt like the silver lining was when you looked at who held that record for sacks, it was Aaron Rodgers, who was the MVP of the entire league last year. Um, so the, I think there's lots of opportunities to, to say that we can grow as a team um, and be able to achieve that transformation. Um, maybe not today, or maybe we, you know, we can take all of this um, recommendation. Should we run the ball? Should we throw the ball? Should we shoot the ball? Should we pass the ball? But we have shown kind of from our failure points where our strategy can be kind of fluid in that. So I wanted to ask you, when we're talking about strategies and playbook, what would be the playbook of a digital transformation? Good question. Well, there's two pieces of it. One would be the, the overarching plan. And just to keep with the sports analogy there, you know, most people listening are probably thinking, all right, I, great, I've got a plan, so I'm good. I've got, a, I've got a playbook. Well, you want to make sure it's a complete plan or a complete playbook. And so what I mean by that is, you know, if you're taking the input that your software vendor or your implementer has given you as a proposal for, for the implementation plan, you've really only covered one part of your transformation. There's a whole, you know, you're missing a big part of the playbook and the other parts of the playbook are going to be things like your change management, your process improvement, your process reengineering, your overall program management, data migration, you know, all the stuff that your software vendor or implementer isn't going to do well. So, you know, with that analogy in mind, it's a lot like if you say, well, I've got a, I've got a special teams playbook, but I don't have my offense or my defensive playbook. And you think you're prepared because you've got this playbook in front of you, but it only covers one dimension of your game. And so you're completely unprepared on the other. So that's a way to, to think about that. The other part of it too is a lot, the, the plan is only, uh, the plan only gives you a framework of things that need to happen and it sort of gives you the sequence. It doesn't show you how you're going to do those things and how you measure whether or not you did those things successfully. So that's where you need frameworks, you need methodologies, you need um, someone who can assess how you're doing those things. 
um, much like a coach. You know, you need a coach that can tell you in practice that, okay, you understand the playbook, but you're executing it poorly. And here's what you need to do to improve, or here's what you can do to really maximize what you're doing. So those are the two dimensions that I'd say are are most important to tie back to that, that sports analogy. That's interesting. And so if we were to assign each kind of role to um, a position, and I don't even know if that's what you call it in in basketball, like say our project manager is the point guard um, because he's moving or she's moving the, the ball around to the right person. What would like the, the forwards be or something like that? Um, what would some other positions in sports analogy in, and if you need to use a different sport, like I would probably need to use football because I don't know all the positions of basketball that well. Um, but I thought it might be fun to kind of look at what those roles might be on the team, the ERP implementation team. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. So yeah. And let's go with basketball since you're talking about it. And I don't know which sport is most popular worldwide. I, I tend to think it might be basketball, but I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how popular I would agree. Is it? Yeah, American football. I would I would think so. But just as a shameless marketing ploy too, we've done a blog about the top NFL teams if they were software vendors. And I have tried and tried to find um, our European football or our rugby teams. So I know we have a lot of UK and Australian listeners on this podcast. So feel free to reach out to me directly if you want a guest blog. But, um, right. you know, just a little plug for, <laughs> for our marketing nice. content in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not your guy for that. I don't know much about uh, soccer or yeah. rugby, but uh, but as far as basketball, then I'd say I'd agree that your your project manager is, is your point guard. Um, I'm trying to think. Your your shooting guard is usually you know that's your flashy uh, big name. Usually, it's putting up all the points. Um, you know that might be. I don't know. That might be your 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 technical lead because that's what people see. You know, that's the most obvious thing is like the software looks great or you've developed the software in a way that I can see it and touch it. Um, but it, it sort of shadows the really important other parts of a team. Like, uh, the, the one position I'm most fascinated by is the center. Cause I feel like the center, you know, our younger son has a really good center that he plays with and he, the kid is awesome and he's not the highest scorer. He's not the flashiest player, but he does all the dirty work. You know, he gets the rebounds and he, um, you know, he gets the ball to the shooters and he, you know, if he wasn't there, their team would not be very good. And so, um, so I don't know what that is. That, that might be, I don't know if that's change management. That, that might be more of like a, either a change management or a data migration type of person, like someone that's not. Yeah. I was thinking like data. Yeah. Yeah. Like, kinda... like a, a, a business process type of person that makes sure everybody's moving efficiently around, you know, and. And they're, you know, getting the ball and putting it back to where it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's, yeah, maybe it's more of a data and, and or process reengineering person would be like your center and then your forwards, you know, that would probably be your change management uh, type people that are, um, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're sort of closing the, closing the, the, the loop on the, on the whole thing. And without them, you know, any one of these positions, you can't really compete without, but um, they sort of fill the, you know, fill an important, an important link there. Excellent. Well, we'll have to work with Khalid to put together um, maybe NBA teams if they were software vendors. And we always get, you know, such funny feedback from our software vendors like, oh, can I be these people or can I be these people? And and um, Eric's the first to say that we we don't ever give in to those things. Um, but it's always, you know, fun to see what they perceive themselves as um, and give some sort of our lifestyle content. Um, 
But I really enjoyed that conversation with Khalid. And I would encourage our audience, he is newer here at Third Stage, but reach out to him, um, welcome him, say hi. Uh, his contact information will be in the description and you can um, kind of talk to him before he gets you know, completely thrown into the third stage workload and, you know, becomes a big, important executive. So thank you for kind of taking us through that conversation with him. Yeah. It was great to have him on. And uh, yeah, he's been doing this for 15 years. He's new, newer to third stage, but not, not new to the industry. So it's good to, good to have him on the team. So um, great stuff. So when we uh, come back from a break, we're going to have our next guest, which is Adam Cheatham. And we're going to talk about the labor shortage in the transformation technology implementation space and what it means to um, what it means to your transformation and how to navigate that that reality here today. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. Um, we just finished up with a interview from our director Khalid talking about um, digital transformation and youth sports. Um, and now we're going to move on to a clip I actually recorded with Adam Cheatham to talk about ERP and labor, labor shortage. So the reason that we wanted to talk about this is I know we've kind of dived into the supply chain side of what labor shortage and the, the material management and the challenges there. Um, but in, in talking with Adam, because I do know him well, we are married, if you haven't noticed the, the last name correlation, I wanted to dig into more of what that meant for ERP. So we went ahead and, um, and filmed this pre-recorded interview with him. So with that, um, let's play the clip. Um, before we dive in, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you do here at the third stage, what your role is for our audience members that haven't met you. Yeah, so uh, my name is Adam Sheetham, Director of Strategy and Transformation at Third Stage Consulting Group. Uh, what I generally do is, uh, is help um, create teams at Third Stage that um, work with our clients to create successful digital transformation, um, starting at the very beginning. You know, we believe that a successful digital transformation starts with a great digital strategy um, and includes work streams from um, not just an executive buy-in and, and sponsorship, but also from a business process management and organizational change management, data management, and, and so many other work streams that need to be managed in parallel so that you are effectively using enterprise apps to accomplish your digital transformation goals. Excellent. And you are just in the U.S. or do you manage global projects as well? Yes. So um, I, I have projects and manage projects across the globe. Um, uh, on all 
uh, on all continents. Excellent. Well, we're so excited today for you to kind of give us some insight on what a system integrator does and how they create value or influence digital transformation projects. So let's start from the beginning. Can you tell me a little bit about what a system integrator actually does within a digital transformation? Yeah, so a system integrator is somebody who is going to create the software environment that you seek to deploy. Um, they implement your software. Um, for the most part, they are more technically oriented and focused on getting software up and running. Um, sometimes that does include a little bit of conversation around what are your business goals and what are your change needs, um, but they are mostly focused on the technical aspects of uh, deploying software. Interesting. And so why do you have a system integrator instead of a vendor that just integrates your software? Yeah, so there's um, there there are a number of different industry terms that should be kind of talked through on this. For, for starters, you have software vendors. Software vendors are companies that sell software. Oracle is a software vendor. Microsoft, N4, SAP, QAD, um, anybody that will sell you software is a software vendor. Uh, now, in some cases, software vendors also implement their own software. So the um, Oracle and Infor, for example, will implement some of their own software packages. And so they can also be your system integrator, your implementer. Um, further down the line, you may have system integrators, companies that are that don't sell software, but focus entirely on implementing it. Um, this is a pretty common model. Uh, Microsoft, for example, is entirely dependent on system integrators. You cannot hire Microsoft to implement your software, as at least as it pertains to ERP. Um, they've separated that out so that you, uh, they're dependent on a large network of system integrators that, that you buy your software from Microsoft, and then you pay a, pay a third-party system integrator to configure it and deploy it for you. Um, you also have VARs, value-added resellers, who um, play a different number of different roles. They don't sell software as it pertains to core ERP packages, but what they do is they sell add-ons. Um, in the food and beverage industry, for example, this is pretty common, where you buy, you buy a, a software package that uh, from a, a value-added reseller who has their own in intellectual property that is embedded within the software. It looks like the software, it acts like the, the software that you purchased from say, for example, Microsoft, um, but it also includes some industry uh, terminology and, and like um, that is designed to make the software feel more like it was created for a more niche industry. Um, Metals accelerators are another good one. Um, we've evaluated for some of our larger steel clients, um, uh, metals accelerator software packages where um, the core ERP system includes um, units of measure and descriptions and part numbers and IDs that are unique to the metals industries. So those types of things. Excellent. Well, thank you for that overview. There were some in there that I've never even heard of. So that was really informative for me. Um, what are some examples of system integrators? 
Um, yeah, so some examples of system integrators, uh, anybody that implements software can be uh, considered a system integrator. Um, Oracle is a system integrator. Um, Accenture and Deloitte and, and um, our system integrators, they implement um, software packages. Uh, you'll also hear uh, of a number of different smaller companies um, that are, are integrators that are more oriented towards niche industries and applying a, a software packages strengths to each of those industries. Um, you'll often find even if there isn't a value-added reseller component to it, um, food and beverages is an industry that system integrators are a bit more capable than the overall vendors in a lot of cases. Um, so it's um, an example of a system integrator really is in, um, any company that will help you implement software. Gotcha. From the technical and, perspective. Okay, excellent. Um, and do they, do they vary depending on business and project size, kind of like software vendors would do as well? Yeah, and there's a bit of a, um, there's a lot wrapped up in that question. So I'll kind of take it bite by bite. Um, some software vendors will um, will push uh, prospective clients off to their system integrator network, depending on size. Um, Epicor, for example, um, in a lot of cases, they like to push um, any client that is under the $50 million revenue mark um, to, to their system integrator network so that they can have a more intimate experience with their system implementer. Um, on the flip side of it, if you're quite a lot larger, Epicor is more likely to say, we're going to take that on because we wrote this software and we use this software. And so being able to do that for a large company is meaningful. Um, you also find that, um, that depending on area and locale, um, the uh, industry um, and, and software package, uh, what you're looking for, will also drive um, whether or not a software vendor wants to take on your project as an implementation for themselves or to, um, to farm that out to one of their system integrators based on your, your software needs. Gotcha. Yeah, that, there is a lot wrapped up in that. So just to kind of unpack that a little bit more. So Adam, can the same system integrator help with an ERP full service solution as well as a more best of breed type of system or do they have specific verticals that they specialize in? Again, this is a pretty diverse industry on the whole and a pretty diverse market. So the answer is it depends. Um, let's say, for example, you buy Infor and Infor CRM. There's a high likelihood that the same integrator will implement both of those packages for you. But let's say for uh, you, you do something different. We recently had a client that went with um, Microsoft ERP, Salesforce CRM, and a, um, I forget off the top of my head, but a different HCM package. Mm -hmm. uh, what you start looking at in those spaces is a different vendor and different system implementer for each, um, at which point you should be heavily considering um, some assistance in managing that that uh, kind of conglomeration of systems and, 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 and implementers to help you keep them all straight and keep them all on the same path um, because they will all only have their own software's interests at heart, um, which is fine, that's okay. You should expect them to focus on their project, project as opposed to 
everybody else's, but having somebody that can help you keep all of those ducks in a row so that you know when um, your ERP vendor and, and, and system implementer and your um, EDI implementer are working together so that you deploy, deploy together on time. Gotcha. And, and what should clients expect from their system integrator? What, what are some expectations that would be typical to look for? Um, so from a perspective of the, the more purest system integrators, you should, um, or it's just the, the smaller companies or the, the companies that focus just on the software, clients should expect their, um, their partners in that space to focus on helping them implement software that fits their business requirements and needs. Um, what I mean by that is helping them understand how the software must be built and then going and configuring it to do so, helping identify areas where customizations could be warranted and then scoping and deploying those customizations. Um, what they won't do and what they will tell you that they do is organizational change management and business process management. Um, and the reason for that is twofold. From a change management perspective, system integrators are, um, heavily consider change management to be, this is your process before, this is your process today, here is your document for using today's process, that is change management. We have managed the change. That's not organizational change management. It is uh, technically can be considered, you, you can use those words to describe it, but organizational change management is not something that system integrators do, um, at least not frequently, and is more oriented towards, now that we know what the change is, let's lean into that and help your team understand how their pro uh, processes are gonna be different, what it is um, they need to do to be able to use the software effectively during those differences, having conversations about when you decide not to customize software, what your process is going to have to be in the software itself and what that change looks like and how folks can then learn to use the system, adopt the system and become effective within it. The other thing that they do, don't do particularly well is um, understanding the difference between what, um, what the impacts are of a, an out of the box solution versus a custom solution. Um, there, uh, there's a, um, a software bias, I think, for everybody to say, my software can do anything. Mm -hmm. And that's why I work for them. Good for you. I'm really glad that you had that pride in your software. But just because it can do anything, because you can make it do anything, doesn't mean that it should. Right. So the question becomes, I want the software to do this one different thing. Um, and your, your configuration team is going to say, okay, that's a customization. And if you wanted to do that, that um, their role stops there and they pass you over to a group of developers whose role is to scope out and develop that custom solution. Um, what's missing in between those is should we do this at all? Not can it be done, should it be done? And um, what you miss in this, in this handoff is the, consult the business consultants who are um, responsible for configuring your software identify customization and then they, they wash their hands of, of that conversation and they pass it off. So before that pass off happens is when you should be talking to somebody, uh, a third party, um, you know, 
quality assurance firm or project management firm that can help you understand what are the consequences of customizing that software? Because at some point you're gonna to have to recustomize it to keep up with updates. Um, okay, so we can customize that. Or what if we just did it the way the software does it? Do we need this customization? Does it add value? Those questions um, don't get asked by the, the system integrator consultants and they certainly don't get asked by the developers because by that point, the developer's job is to say, I need to make the software do this. And so that is what I will do. I will make the software do that. And you as the client get a bill for the expensive customization that you asked for and missed the opportunity to have the, cost, uh, the conversation as to whether or not that money is well spent at all. Yeah, I think that that's so important in kind of that concept that we preach a lot here at Third Stage is letting your strategy lead the technology and not the other way around. Um, so that was a lot of really great information. We are going to take a quick break and then get back to our interview with Adam Cheatham, Director of Transformation and Strategy here at Third Stage, talking about um, labor shortage and ERP. Um, and we'll get back to it in just a few minutes. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We are um, in midst of talking to Adam Cheatham about labor shortage and ERP and what that can mean for your digital transformation. So with that, um, we will continue on our conversation. So we kind of scratched the surface of what is a system integrator, what do they do, what to expect from them in the beginning of our episode. Um, and I'd like to kind of learn a bit more about what our audience should look out for when speaking to a system integrator. Um, so let's, let's dig into kind of the evaluation process for a system integrator. What are some considerations that our listeners or organizations should be mindful of when choosing an SI? Yeah, so um, first and foremost, it's um, their ability to understand their own software package and implement it well. Um, you know, you can have the right software package and implement it badly and you're in a catastrophic failure. So having a partner in an SI who can implement that software well because they understand it, they have the experience behind it, is very, very important. Um, just as important is your cultural fit with them. You know, what's um, what we haven't touched on yet and should kind of consider a little bit is that your system, your relationship with your system integrator doesn't end when you go live. Okay. It more or less continues for the duration of your use of that software. When you need upgrades to that software in the future, when you want to add users, when you want to um, create an API to, to interface with some other homegrown whatever, or 
a new software system, like you want to add a CRM, you're going to work with that system integrator again and again and again. That should, you should expect that relationship to last a decade or more. So what you want is a partner that fits, um, somebody whose size is meaningful to you. Um, if, you're, um, if you're a small company and you want to implement with Accenture, um, that's probably, you're going to be a small fish in their very, very large pond and they are not going to pay attention to you. You're not going to be as important to them as some of their more massive clients. On the flip side, there's a there's still a benefit to that as well because you get the benefit of the work that they do for all of those other large companies that might trickle down to you. So there's a there's a flip side there. Uh, um, the converse of that conversation is you might decide to implement with a um, a system integrator that's a bit smaller is a bit um, a bit more of a niche fit for your culture as a company, and you might be a bit bigger fish in their pond. And so when you need something, they're more likely to respond, um, and they're more likely to respond in a manner that's cost-effective for you as opposed to the big four approach to just throwing bodies at it. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is that um, you're, uh, you're attached to them from a perspective of capacity. They just don't have the weight to carry, carry on some of the other things that might be benefits of hitching your wagon to a larger star. So there's some considerations there when it comes to culture and their ability to understand your needs. Also, you should understand whether or not you are a vanilla kind of manufacturing company or whatever fit you are in your industry, or whether or not you're a bit more of a niche, um, a niche company. And that's important because you want them to understand your business. When they understand your business, then they're going to have more to more value to add on how it is you can use your software, uh, their software for your business. Um, so building on that cultural fit, what are some of the risks associated if you do hire a system integrator that isn't the right fit for your business? Um, part of that is one of the biggest risks is increased costs. You know that um, their consultants are going to bill you by the hour. And if it takes them four hours to figure something out that uh, that uh, company that is a better fit for you would have figured out in one, you just paid for three hours that um, maybe you didn't need to. Um, so that's one of the risks there. Um, I'd say that uh, uh, to, to reorient the question and say, what are the risks of choosing the wrong system integrator on the whole? Um, choosing a system integrator who can't uh, implement their own software choosing a system integrator who hasn't done this frequently enough to understand your industry. These are all things that um, are, are red flags and you should get a little bit of a feel for that in demonstrations as well as implementation planning and negotiations. Today, particularly, I highly, highly recommend you demand to meet the project resources they are proposing to be on your team. Um, today, I'm finding more and more the folks in the sales cycle are only there to sell software. And even the ones that like, yeah, this guy is a PM that he helps run our, um, our projects at the professional services level. Um, he's still just there to help sell the software to you so that then they can get you a different PM. Um, so you want to be very focused on what your team is there and whether or not they can handle your needs so that you can understand whether or not this system integrator is the right one for you.
Yeah, definitely. That that makes a, a lot of sense. When when we talk about system integrators, I know we've put out a lot of com content on those kind of tier two system integrators and, and why it's important to include them in your evaluation process. Can you can you kind of explain to us what maybe a tier two system integrator might bring as far as value to your project that say maybe the larger big four don't? Yeah, those smaller system integrators, the biggest thing is the focus and the attention that's catered towards you. Um, you know, the, there's a there's a sense of, um, you know, if you're using a big, uh, a big firm, uh, there are a couple ways of thinking through that. First and foremost, the big four are, um, they're going to throw bodies at it. And that's, that's going to be their first solution to throw bodies at it. They're technically, they're going to throw bodies at it before you have challenges and questions. Um, because that's their business model. Um, but overall, when you have a challenge that they need to fit and need, bodies are sometimes a good thing. They're sometimes prohibitively expensive. Um, the other side of it, even if the tactic isn't to throw bodies at it, you are going to get somebody who is a finance-focused um, uh, consultant and a supply chain-focused consultant and a, and a sales-focused consultant from some of the larger organizations who are going to see your business as it happens in silos. Um, and the, and the, the reason for that is just because they, they need a larger team to implement their software, that's their business model. So they split things up. Um, smaller system integrators are more likely to create a more intimate relationship with you and your team to be able to see you holistically, where you may have somebody who, put, who wears multiple hats as far as roles are concerned, Somebody, for example, might be an, um, an expert in both finance and manufacturing is one of your team members from the system integrator side. For some clients, that's a real benefit. For other clients, um, trying to have that broad nature um, of the experience is, is not what they need. They need somebody more specialized. So there's some trade-offs here and there. Yeah, so it sounds like really defining what your needs are as a business um, is you know, so important in choosing the right system integrator, which you mentioned in our, our considerations conversation. Um, switching gears to some red flags. What are some red flags that our listener, listeners should be aware of when evaluating system integrators to make sure that they're you know, looking out for anything that they should be concerned within the kind of interview or evaluation process? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and there are a few of them that I'd, I'd like to mention. First, the first and foremost one is System integrators that actively dodge your questions. Um, I recently had a system integrator um, who client was up front, um, and this is several months ago, so um, you know uh, a little bit different of a, of a of an experience. But the client was up front. We want to be live on January first. We'd like to see what your project plan looks like for January first, um, and the more they asked about that, the more the system integrator dodged it. You know, it's like, well, you know, we'll get you that. Um, we'll get your project plan outline is active. They, it got to the point where they were actively dodging that question. You can ask it every day and they're not going to give you a different answer, which is we'll get to that. Um, and if you haven't gotten to it yet, you're not going to. Um, that particular client just came out and, uh, uh, and found out that that system integrator, um, while they were saying, yeah, we could probably do that. We'll get you a date later. Um, the, the date they were given recently was, June 1st. Little different, huh? Little different. So, you know, those, those types of things were 
actively dodging a question is a massive red flag, but there are some other subtleties that you should, you should look out for. One of them is as you have software demonstrations, make sure that this client, this software vendor and implementer is trying to earn your business by expressing a, an interest in it and an understanding of it. You don't want them to show up and go through the motions and demonstrate how it is their software builds bicycles or stereos or whatever the go-to um, absolutely worthless example is as it pertains to software. They should show, show you what their software looks like when they build your products. And if they're not asking for things like demo data, that um, sample bombs, sample purchase orders, uh, sample client uh, and customer files, so that they can make their their software relevant to you, that's a red flag. That means they're going through the motions. Mm -hmm. um, last minute changes for on this in the sales cycle are always red flags. Um, as are um, anybody who is more willing to trash their competition rather than show why it is they're the more effective product for you. Um, and trust your gut, trust your feeling on it, and 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 lean into it. Um, these, there's no slicker salesperson on planet earth, except maybe the used car, secondhand car salesman, um, than a software salesman. They, they know all of the objections. They know all of the answers that are going to make your mind think, all right, that's going to work for me. Um, because they know how to, uh, to manipulate the wording to make it sound like what you want to hear but not technically give you what it is you're looking for. Mm. Um, overall, especially these days um, when we were finding so many system integrators can't staff their own projects, let alone um, uh, prove that they have the team behind it. Keep, keep an eye on those things, ask the questions. And if you don't get the answers, ask them again, you know, ask for that go live date, that project schedule. Cause if that's an important thing to you, you should get the answer. Absolutely. Those are some um, great things to be aware of. And, and I think a lot of times clients and our, our listeners aren't aware that they can actually ask those questions, that they have that power to make their own decisions and really own their product um, and projects. So on, on that note, kind of building on that, we, we brushed over kind of the industry bias. Um, and you mentioned that system integrators can have some of that bias. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit and then and maybe give us some tactics on on how we can overcome or understand that bias? Yeah, and, um, so the easiest way of framing that is the system integrator who wants to be a selection firm and considers their selection services as a, as early business development for their system integrator services. Um, they'll tell you all kinds of. Yeah, you know, we're independent, um, you know, and, and so we're going to help focus this on your needs. And then you go and click through their website and they sell software. Um, I can tell you for free what their shortlist is going to be. <laughs> uh, you can find out on your own. They don't, they're, they're only interested in selling you the software that they sell. Um, so as you start thinking through this, as far as a bias is concerned, when you're thinking about recommendations from software, uh, from system integrators, you can assume that that's because they're familiar with their software packages. And that's fine, that's normal, right? Like it's, um, it's normal to say, 
Well, I, I, I mean, I, I implement our software. I've seen it be successful in a number of environments, um, but that doesn't mean they've seen it be successful in your environment. Mm -hmm. And so focus on your needs because just be, um, you know, the, the industry accelerators, the competitors of yours that use um, NetSuite um, and, and, and um, the competitors of yours that use Salesforce or this, that, or the other, those are, yeah, those are certainly indicators and data points, but they're not as meaningful as your needs. And what it is is different about your company. Um, just because somebody else uses a different package doesn't mean that's the right package for you. The same way best practices aren't the same for everybody. They're, they're individualized to each company. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for sharing all of that insight. Any final thoughts? that we didn't cover that you'd like to share with our audience about system integrators? If you're feeling over your head on this, reach out to somebody that can help, somebody that's independent and unbiased on it. Um, because the last thing you wanna do is, start, is ask for help from somebody that already has a pre-conceived uh, answer for you. Um, look for help, don't be afraid to ask for it. Even if it's as a sounding board to somebody to say, hey, you know, what do you think about this out of the other? Um, you know, the third stage does this very well, but there, uh, there are also opportunities in a number of spaces, industries and the like that, that you can look for help on how it is you approach this and, and how it is uh, you can be successful with it. Great point. And speaking of other resources, if our listeners today want some additional resources or more information on system integrators, um, where could they find something like that? Yeah, so um, our webpage, our LinkedIn channel, our, our YouTube channel, all these are great sources of information. Of course, the podcast that you're listening to, to right now. Um, also, feel free to reach out to me directly or any of our directors and consultants for, for questions uh, on this type of thing. We'd be happy to talk to you about it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that clip with Adam Cheatham, Director of Digital Transformation and Strategy here at Third Stage, talking about ERP and labor shortage. I know Eric and I have a lot to unpack when we come back from the break uh, in just a few minutes. I'm all right today. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We're here chatting, or we just chatted with uh, Adam Cheatham. We had a clip of him uh, speaking with you, Kyler, about labor shortages in the transformation space. What were some of your observations or takeaways after that, that conversation? Yeah, something that Adam had mentioned, and the reason I kind of wanted to unpack this is, is we knew that there was a labor shortage globally, um, right? You know, the service industry has really struggled with that. Retail industry has really struggled. And we've talked a lot about how digital transformations can, can help go through that. But I did not know, and I'd be interested in your feedback and experience on, that there's actually a labor shortage 
within the digital transformation industry. So bandwidth for system integrators, for software vendors, and there's been challenges, it sounds like from what Adam was saying, in just actually getting vendors to go to demos with clients. Um, so he kind of talked about that. And I wondered if, if you had experienced the same thing um, within the last couple of weeks or months at this point um, and how that's kind of affected your client work. Yeah, I mean, it's it's on one hand, you know, with COVID and people's tendency to, you know, be more open to remote demos and remote consulting and whatnot, that sort of freed up capacity in some ways. But in other ways, to, to Adam's points, you know, the, there's been a labor shortage. So that's sort of countered any you know, efficiency gain that's come from that or capacity gain that's come from that. So it, it is a challenge and it's, you know, it's always been a challenge, honestly, and it's probably the part of software evaluation and software selection engagements that I like the least is that that's the part that we can't control because we're independent. We don't have ownership of the sales teams that work for different sales reps. You're kind of at their mercy in some ways. Now, granted, you know, people know how much influence we have. They know how many clients we have and how many purchasing decisions we uh, influence on a on an annual basis. So they tend to try harder with us because of that, but it's still not perfect by any means. So it, it is something that needs to be uh, navigated and you just have to be ready for that potential disruption and you have to be ready to pivot. Um, in some cases, it might mean that you throw out a vendor because if they can't if they can't meet your needs in the sales cycle, but the other ones you're considering can, then that might be a good indicator that it's time to throw them out. But if you know it's a really good solution, you feel like it could be a really strong contender, then, you know, then unfortunately you're in a position where you've got to balance that potential benefit against the, the cost and the risk of now having to potentially delay a project. Uh, one thing we've done is to fill in that gap uh, and to take some of the pressure off that reliance on software vendors and their sales reps is that we have a database that we draw from that has, you know, 30,000 requirements and it maps the quantitative ranking of each of those requirements against all the different systems in the marketplace. And what that does, is it gives a quantitative and objective agnostic uh, input into the evaluation process so that you can narrow down to maybe just one or two vendors that you want to see demos from, and you're not trying to get demos from four or five or six uh, vendors, um, which by the way, is, is another driver of how software vendors oftentimes bail out of demo processes. If they know that they've got competition of four or five, six competitors, they're probably going to prioritize other opportunities higher than yours. So the more you can narrow it down to even just two options, they're going to be a lot more likely to want to participate because they know that they've got a 50-50 chance of winning versus, you know, a 10% chance of winning if there's a, a crowded field of competitors. So that that's just something to think about. You want to just ha have thought through all those different paths so it's not a surprise if you do end up having to pivot at some point along the way. Yeah, that's a really good point, you know, to, to kind of hone in on your requirements. And I know Adam touched on um, the prior work that you can do, kind of the controllables in, you know, building out your strategies, aligning on your processes, establishing your future state, all of those those different types of things. One thing that I, I and in listening to it again, I wish I would have asked is he talked about the kind of shortage, if you will, of the executive leadership and how that can really um, kind of take a, a project off track. So say you are working with a client and they replace their CFO and then all of a sudden you don't have that kind of alignment that you had before and you completely shift that project. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit more. What happens when you're, say, your executive sponsor or something like that 
leaves and you kind of have to realign to an, a new project leader or lack thereof on a digital transformation project? Well, you know, my thought on that is that this project, whatever it is to you as an organization, is a is much larger than any one person. And you don't want it to be a situation where any one person can totally derail or change the direction of a project. And if, if that is the case, and, and you find that replacing an executive sponsor or a key stakeholder is going to have a dramatic change to your project, I would question you know, what kind of plan and what kind of what kind of plan do you really have? What kind of strategy do you really have in place? Because to me, strategies and plans aren't about personalities. It's about the organization. And so it shouldn't matter, you know, who's, who's involved, you know, either from a project team perspective or stakeholders or leaders on the, on the, uh, in the organization, you should have an aligned strategic plan, um, an aligned project plan, and everything should be aligned around that overall strategy. And that strategy doesn't really change with one person or even a handful of people. So I guess that would be the, my thought is it shouldn't, if you're that dependent on one person, then you're probably doing something wrong. You're probably missing something uh, in the, in the overall approach. Right. Definitely. So, you know, having that strategic alignment is more than just actually the people that sit in, in that role. It's having the actual plan and strategy um, across the organization, it sounds like, um, and, you know, basing that off of what your goals are and your future state is not one person's perception, it sounds like. Yeah. And if you bring in someone that is going to totally redirect your strategy or, or is worthy of a total redirect, that tells me that either that person's not aligned with the organizational strategy or um, your strategy has, wasn't aligned to begin with. So, or it could be some kind of mix of both. So that's the way to think about it. Yeah, that's a really good point and, you know, something that, that is important to consider when you are going into a transformation is, is that it is kind of that team mentality like we talked about with Khalid earlier. Um, and, and Adam kind of laid out a few um, ways in which you can quote unquote plan for labor shortage or how you can kind of anticipate that. I wondered if you had any kind of additional tactics that you've seen kind of that's relevant in client work and how you can plan for supply chain issues or for resourcing issues or what that looks like in your opinion. As far as planning for those resource issues, is it? Yeah, as, yeah. as much as you can, right? Being more proactive than reactive, if at all possible. Yeah. So um, this, I would say this same answer, even if these resource shortages weren't uh, prevalent in this space, which they are. Um, but even in times of more abundant resources, you still would want to make sure that you have ownership of the project and that you have plenty of internal resources committed. Because the more you do that, uh, first of all, that just gives you more ownership as an organization. And that's typically a good thing. But secondly, in the context of your question, if there are resource shortages from your software vendor, you've hedged and mitigated that risk by having internal resources that are focused on the project. And ideally you want to upskill those resources so that, you know, maybe they're not quite as good or they're not ever going to fully replace what an outside expert in one specific area might be able to, but at least you start to build that competency in house to where you're not dependent on any, any one person or any one organization. Same as what I said about, you know, the executive or the stakeholder that leaves or you have to replace it's, it's the same with your system integrator. You shouldn't be that dependent on a system integrator or any shortcoming 
from your system integrator. It, it certainly is disruptive. You, ideally, you don't want to have that sort of disruption, but you also don't want to be so dependent on them that, you know, you expose yourself to that sort of risk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to build on that, um, our digital stratosphere podcast episode this week is actually all about system integrators. Um, so great opportunity if you want to know more about that or how you can kind of identify any bias in choosing a system integrator in that project ownership that we all know is so important. Um, you can head over to our digital stratosphere podcast as well to check that out. Um, as you, you probably noticed in the interview, Eric, Adam obviously had maybe some tough client calls or something going on in the the beginning half because as I said, you know, this is all sunshine and rainbows, I guess, <laughs> as he, you know, was kind of outlining it. So we shifted to what can you do in optimizing a digital transformation to deal with labor shortage, to deal with supply chain issues, material shortage? How can you utilize the technology to actually help the labor shortage as opposed to it be kind of a pain point in your digital transformation. So I'm interested in your, in your feedback on that. Well, much like you, you would use technology ideally to, to uh, schedule resources. If, you know, if you're a manufacturer, you, you might use technology to schedule shop floor resources, or if you're a retailer, you use technology to schedule store operations. Um, same thing with a project. You know, if you can look at uh, a transformation project and fully understand what the the exact uh, labor inputs are required to make the project successful, that's going to make it easier for you to identify, you know, who those resources are and identify backup resources in case someone leaves or if someone's sick, you know, who, who's going to fill, fill in that void. Uh, problem is, ironically, a lot of organizations have the technology to do, uh, to have a good handle on staffing for their day-to-day operations. But when it comes to a big, massive transformation, they tend to more shoot from the hip. And a lot of times that's because they don't know and the system integrator isn't really helping them define what those internal resources are because that's not their job. And by the way, it benefits the system integrators if you don't have enough resources because then they will, you know, aside from these shortages we're talking about, if they have resources available, they will use that as an opportunity to, you know, bill you more. So uh, you really have to you know, tighten up. I think organizations in general should, there's an opportunity for them to tighten up that process for sure. Yeah. And what about, I know a lot of times, and I think that this is totally valid for someone that might not be too experienced with AI or machine learning to think, Hey, I'm having a real hard time hiring people for, um, you know, my manufacturing floor. Maybe I'll just automate all of these processes. And Adam kind of touched on a little bit of the danger of doing that, which we kind of talked about in the Facebook al- algorithm, kind of indirectly. So, ha- have you seen kind of that be more of a, a negative trend in the industry in relying on um, technology that that's completely automated? Yeah, I mean that dependency on on completely automated technology can be um, it, it, it can be challenging and it's also something that's not necessarily transferable to to these sorts of transformations just because there's so much thought and strategy and problem solving that computers haven't quite figured out yet and I don't know if or when they ever will but uh, it's not really a lot of what we do in transformation can't be automated except for things like you know a little bit more uh, black and white things like data migration you know you, you bring the data over or testing you know you can run testing scripts and automated uh, scripts there 
uh, process mining, you know, we're using technologies as a consulting team to help analyze business processes and get actual data from processes in a way that the human uh, facilitation doesn't quite get to. Um, so there are ways that technology is, is becoming embedded in transformation, but a lot of it is still something that relies on strategy and, uh, you know, more of the art than the pure science of it. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely understanding and having more of a, a, a qualitative lens as opposed to just using database decisions. Um, the last thing I, I wanted to ask your opinion on, since you do have such a deep experience um, with being an entrepreneur in general, is Adam gave some examples of how his clients have kind of embraced innovation in um, this time of, of shortage or scarcity. For example, he he gave his client that couldn't get pallets, so they bought a pallet company and just started, you know, utilizing the that type of um, of um, assets. Obviously, not all of our listeners or clients have the means to buy an entire pallet company or a trucking company or those types of things. But I wondered if if you had any examples or or could tell us how you kind of um, inspire your clients to be innovative in a time in which it can be a challenge to get the materials they need to operate their businesses. Well, I think that that you just said, you know, the time they can't get the materials that they need to run their business or the resources they need, um, that dynamic combined with the disruption that, that COVID and all the fallout from that caused, that has really forced a lot of organizations to be innovative, in, even if they weren't before or even if they don't want to be. So it hasn't been that difficult in for the most part to convince clients to be innovative and to move quickly. Um, I think that's why our business surprisingly has been uh, so successful and why we've grown so much since the pandemic started is because so many organizations now recognize that their technology is outdated and they need to do something different. These same organizations, I would argue, probably would have sat on their existing technology for another you know, number of years. Uh, but the pandemic and the supply chain issues we're having now, labor shortages, all the stuff going on in the world right now is really exposing the weaknesses and the deficiencies and the limitations of current technologies. So it hasn't been that difficult. It's still not easy, but it, it has sort of created a sense of urgency that organizations didn't have before. Right, right. Well, thank you so much for kind of unpacking that with me. And, and if any of our audience members have some examples um, about how they've experienced that within either con the consulting industry or going through their transformation in general, we definitely love to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good. Well, thanks for, thanks for that debrief there and some of the additional thoughts. And uh, thank you for uh, playing us that clip with, with Adam. That was a, a great conversation and uh, look forward to hearing people's feedback on that. So uh, that all being said, we want to thank everyone for joining here today. Thanks for being on the show uh, or listening to the show. Be sure to check us out every Wednesday for new episodes. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Thanks very much and have a great day. Mm -hmm.